Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, February 5th, 843-661-0937. Our number. The month is already halfway finished. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. But we do have an extra day of the dumb month of February. We do. Um, sports season ends Sunday, so this will be the week leading up to Super Bowl, uh, the Super Bowl. Um, sports season starts again in um, September, sometime around Labor Day. So from Super Sunday until Labor Day, we honestly don't have any sports. I mean, we have some cute little games that people play. We got sticks and balls and hoops and baskets and all these other sorts of things. But in the true <laughs> testament of testosterone, sports ends this coming Sunday. Um, does anybody care to give a, Josh, this would be an interesting question for you. And I think this would be an interesting question for you. Who's playing in the Super Bowl? <laughs> uh, probably not the Panthers. Okay. Um, I'd say you're I'd right. I'd say... The Patriots and the Broncos, <laughs> or Ravens. I mean, you really I've heard someone could say care that. Less. I I don't know. I, you, and, is and it could this care less. Sunday? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And could care less. <laughs> That's correct. Rev, you know. I mean, it's the Chiefs and the um. Okay, if I told you, I was Josh, say the Kansas City Swifts is what yeah. I was going to say. Well, there you go. The Chiefs and the um, the Chiefs and the 49ers. Or why are we bothered by Taylor Swift? Coming to football games, I'm not bothered. I'm not at all. bothered at all. I mean, it it, it, it kind of makes you ready. It makes a lot of us appear to be a little silly by being bothered that Taylor Swift is going to the Super Bowl and she's going to these playoff games. I mean, she's a chick with a lot of money. She sit in a box. I mean, whether she's dating a player or not, whether she's good for her, you know, going out with somebody on the Chiefs or not, it doesn't matter. Um, Josh, if I told you the Kansas City Chiefs were playing the San Francisco 49ers. Who would you bet on winning? I mean, blind bet. Who do you think wins that game? 49ers. Okay. Rev? I'm going to say Chiefs. Okay. Here's my deal. You ready? Because I'm a football bozo. Um, the 49ers have a better team from top to bottom on their 55-man roster. I really believe that the 49ers have a better team. But having said that, it's hard to bet against the better coach and the better quarterback. And Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes have earned the right to be called two of the best that have ever done what they do. I mean, if Mahomes win this, wins this game, that gives him three Super Bowls. But that puts him in rare air. I'm not saying he's the best quarterback that ever lived. He is an electrifying quarterback. And Andy Reid is a better coach than Shanahan. I believe the 49ers have a better team. So normally you say, well, they're the better team. Why don't you bet on the better team? In one big moment, it's hard for me to bet against the better quarterback and the better and the better coach. Um, and I mean, it, I'm a little biased in this game. I'm not necessarily a 49ers fan, but I'm a Gamecock fan. And a lot of the 49er offense is built around a former Gamecock named Debo Samuel. And if Debo's healthy, now we'll say this, ref. You ready? I'm going to sound like a homer for a second. Mahomes and Reed, I think, give the Chiefs a distinct advantage. Not a huge advantage, but a big advantage. But the one player that can, quote, unquote, go off is Debo. I mean, that, that's Agreed. the one player that could catch a seam route and go 75 yards. Two possessions later, um, do a jet sweep and go 90 yards. I mean, he's that kind of player. He's um, probably the most electric player on the field. I didn't say the best but the most electric player on the field. So 
once again, I defer to the quarterback-coach combination in a big game. But but if Debo were to go off, quote-unquote, the 49ers could win the game. Should be a good game. Two really good teams, um, two good coaches. I think one is one of the all-time greats. The other is one of the up-and-coming offensive geniuses. But it concludes the sports season for this, not not calendar year, but this sports rotation. And we'll get back to sports sometime around Labor Day when the college football crowd decides to come back to work. Um, I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek because all of a sudden, my beloved university, uh, a school that I went to a function at Saturday night with my daughter, um, a sorority event, the um, the event included 60% girls from New Jersey. I'm serious. I thought I was on the New Jersey turnpike. Um, hey, I want, you to, I want to introduce you to my friend, Dad. This is such-and-such from New Jersey. Here's another such-and-such from New Jersey. And I'm thinking to myself, See, my daughter hears friends from New Jersey in her sorority. You know what I hear? Out-of-state tuition. <laughs> right. I just know how that world works. And every time I go, oh, huh, nice to meet you. Sure, you play in out-of-state tuition. Mm-hmm. How's that working out uh, for you? But it doesn't matter. It's all student debt. And some of it will be forgiven, and some of it will not be I'm forgiven. But the reason I'm trying to take a jab at my beloved Gamecocks is – it's basketball you now, I'm told. <laughs> I mean, it's basketball you. We're not in the Northeast. It kind of is. We're not in the way. Midwest. We're in the deep South, and we have the best record of any basketball, excuse me, any major university in America when you include the men's and women's uh, basketball game. I did watch a game um, Saturday, no, Sunday, yesterday afternoon. I was flipping through the channels, and the Lady Gamecocks were playing. So I stopped for a brief moment, oh. and I saw a female get airborne. You did? I did. I mean, they actually leave the ground when they're doing a jump shot. Now, now, wait a minute. When I said that I watched the South Carolina women's basketball game a few weeks ago, I never heard the end of it. You said you watched the game and cheered well, I did. for the but, team. But, but as soon as I said I it, you're like, through. You, you, when, as soon as I said, well, I watched the game yesterday, and you said, you stopped, you rolled your eyes, you, well, and you just ridiculed me. I, I stayed there for about 10 seconds. Oh, okay. I stayed there long well, enough I, to see. I, I, I saw a, a lady get airborne. Um, <laughs> I think she genuinely left the left the court. Congratulations to our Gamecocks on a win uh, in the conference against Georgia Saturday afternoon. I was driving pretty much all day Saturday. Had some things to do, and I'm listening to the game. Um, and they played well. I mean, they were behind a bit, came back and won the game on the road in Athens. And um, I mean, winning a road game at the conference is hard. Um, we do need you ready. We do need our Clemson. Um, you know, our Clemson. The, the Clemson loss now is not a quality loss as it was a couple of weeks back. Clemson's kind of run into a bit of a a wall. They played really good teams. Uh, they've had some unfortunate breaks. Close call at Cameron. Um, good luck with that one. Uh, <laughs> you'll never get that call. You'll go to Duke. You'll go to play at Cameron Indoor Stadium a hundred years. At 100 years in a row, Duke gets that call. Um, the Gamecocks are playing well. They're playing well enough now to begin. I mean, we're halfway through with the SEC um, season. I think they're 7-2. and two. 18 games, 9 have been played. They're 7-2. and two. I think they are second in the SEC. Um, I did look over the weekend, Rev. Um, I think Auburn, no, no, Alabama is 8-1. and one, And then you've got South Carolina, Tennessee, and uh, Auburn or all seven and two, here's the deal. Here's why that matters. And once again, I'm not a basketball bozo, but rather a football bozo. But anything the Gamecocks are playing and playing well, I tend to get a little bit excited because I'm thinking about the run they made 
2017, 2017, uh, when they made it all the way to the Final Four. The SEC has this weird double buy. I mean, if you're one of the four seeds, one of the top four seeds, you get a double buy. And it's a big advantage when you go play in the SEC basketball tournament. Well, right now, Alabama, South Carolina, Auburn, and Tennessee have a two-game lead on the fifth team that has four losses, and that's Ole Miss, Kentucky, and I think Florida. Maybe the other team with four losses. South Carolina plays tomorrow night at home against Ole Miss. So if the Gamecocks can give Ole Miss their fifth loss in the SEC, and they've only got two losses in the SEC, I mean, that's a big deal. If you can figure out a way to be one of the four seeds, then, you know, you get a double by the SEC tournament, and you're talking about a better seed in the NCAA tournament. And, um, I mean, the wheels could come off today. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. This is not a great team by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, Dawn has a great team, but the men's team is a work in progress. But, um, but they seem to be better than I ever gave them credit for. I mean, you keep waiting on, okay, this will be the game. No, this will be the game. No, next uh, will be the game. They, they apparently have a pretty decent and, and sound program and are in hot pursuit of an NCAA basketball um, bid. March Madness is, uh, is what I'm talking about. But anyway, uh, football ends this week. The Daytona 500 is the next week, so there'll be something to keep us normal and, and, and not jumping off cliffs and going to clinics and seeking help and, and becoming medicated because I'm always in football withdrawal, this, the, the, really the day after, after the Super Bowl. And it's not the Broncos and the Patriots. They're both in the AFC anyway. Josh, <laughs> come on, man. You can do better, better than that. <laughs> but you talk about the sports season being over after the Super Bowl. See, I'm just I'm ready for pitchers and catchers about two weeks away. Huh? That's a cute game. A cute game. Well, I mean, it's, it's okay. a, well, I mean, Americans don't care much about it anymore. Really? Well, I mean, tell me. You tell me. I'm an American. Well, I, I mean, care about okay. it. Okay. I said, I said Americans. <laughs> That's all I, I care about. I didn't say every American <laughs> hates baseball. I said Americans in general have moved on from baseball. Am I wrong? I, well, I think there's been some decline. but I also Tremendous th- decline. But I also think they're you know, selling out stadiums. They, they, like, for example, uh, uh, Truist Park, the Braves, uh, Set records every year in attendance the last several years. So take that for what it's worth. We're talking about Americans like Josh didn't know who's in the Super Bowl. This is a um, the, the latest poll that came out with Haley and Trump. And, well, it was a Haley-Trump-South Carolina registered voter poll. Not likely voter, registered voters. What percentage, Josh, you'll do better on this one, what percentage of registered voters in America, not South Carolina, in America, have never heard of Nikki Haley. Not registered Republicans, registered voters in America. What percentage of registered voters in America don't know who Nikki Haley is? I'm getting 18%. Okay. I'm going to say 25. 23. 23. Both of you are close. 23% of registered voters in America don't know who Nikki Haley is. <laughs> what percentage of Americans, registered voters, have never heard of Donald Trump? Point five. It's less than one yeah, percent. I was I mean, going to say, yeah, yeah. less than one percent have never heard of Donald Trump. Twenty-three percent. For I mean, somebody we, who wants to be a serious candidate for president, they're not likely voters. I mean, I would imagine that number goes down likely amongst likely voters, but amongst registered voters, Democrat and Republican, twenty-three um, percent 
don't know who Nikki Haley is. That's crazy to me, but it's crazy to me that Josh doesn't know who's playing in the Super Bowl. <laughs> I mean, we all have these lanes. We all have these things we, we focus on, concentrate uh, about, and pay attention to. I want to make sure when we get back that we kind of begin the show this week with the immigration bill. Um, it's, it's, there, there's a lot of, uh, it, to me, it's a testament and the testament to the immigration debate or bill, there was a day that the Republicans and Democrats would lock themselves in a room. They'd come out of the room and they would introduce the bill. They would give it a high points. They would, they would basically say, Hey, here's the framework. And about six or eight media outlets in America would just kind of carry that water. I mean, they would frame that debate that they, they would situate that narrative. All of a sudden, you've got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, all these rogue journalists, websites, podcasters doing all the, and you can't control it. I mean, you just cannot control it. And the fatal mistake that McConnell, Lankford, Schumer made was believing that, I guess they're just like dinosaurs trapped in a dinosaur's body because they still believe that they can whisper sweet nothings in the ear of the report of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, NBC, ABC, CBS, and they can just lie to the American people because, once again, controlling the narrative is, is advantageous. They can't control the narrative. And there are so many smart people out there with podcasts and websites and, and you know, some of these, I, I'll call it rogue journalistic efforts that have dug into this bill and found out it's not as we have been told. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not. But now the, the New York Times and Washington Post, I mean, they would have framed it the way Schumer and Langford and McConnell wanted I mean, it framed. It's basically an amnesty bill, right? It, it's it's worse. I mean, it's worse than wow. that. It's uh, well, anyway. Let, let's let's take a break. Our first break of the week. We'll but come I, back. I want to say this about polls as we go to break because I haven't watched Meet the Press in I can't tell you how many years. I mean, literally, you come in and talk about sometimes watching the Sunday shows, and I'm like, okay, well, what do they talk about? Pretty typically, we we know what they talk about. But I just happened to flip across yesterday morning and saw the first segment where they were going over the NBC poll, that was extraordinary for me to see them talk about on Meet the Press on NBC. There's no good in that poll for Biden. I mean, it's a terrible poll for Biden. The only number in that poll that is encouraging to Biden is what voters would do if Trump gets convicted of a crime. I mean, that's the only really uncertainty. And I I don't know that I buy that polling you can't buy the you can't buy all the bad for Biden and not buy any of the bad for Trump. I mean that's a bit <laughs> too bullish on one candidate and bearish on another. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. A little late to the trigger there, Josh. I'm sorry. <laughs> Trying to find out when Denver and um Denver and the Patriots play in the Super Bowl, <laughs> both in the AFC. Come on, Josh. Josh got him a new pad, right, Rev? He did, man. Josh He's has good. new digs now. He's good. Josh That's has right. new digs. Josh had a life lesson. He and I have shared uh, some stories here about life lessons and patience being a uh, a good virtue. Uh, I'm good at telling other people to be patient. Josh, I suck at it. I am the worst there's ever been. <laughs> you you at, give um, advice on patience, really? Yeah, no question about <laughs> it. Rev was talking about the Sunday morning shows. I, it caught me off guard yesterday morning um, when I saw J.D. Vance on the George Stephanopoulos show. Vance is too articulate in explaining America first to be allowed on the show, they'd rather find a dunce who believes Taylor Swift is some, you know, plant from a foreign government. I mean, that's kind of what they like to do and and concentrate on. J.D. Vance is very smart, very articulate, very believing in the America First agenda. Um, they actually shut him down yesterday. 
toward the end of his interview when he was talking about the Supreme Court has ultimate rule and authority, and J.D. Vance had said some things. In other words, if the president of the United States were to fire a general, and the general fired, or the general got had some lawsuit filed against the government, could the Supreme Court ever reinstitute, you know, the the general back in charge of uh, a commander in, in the armed forces? It was kind of a hypothetical question, but um, J.D. Vance was basically arguing about executive branch, legislative branch, and, and judiciary and what the courts may or may not decide on ballot access and, and some of these others. But Stephanopoulos got frustrated and really kind of um, not just not just shut him down, but turned his mic off. I mean, they, they, yeah, really? they, they turned his mic off so he couldn't explain himself. I mean, that's just the way the liberal media um, is. I'm working on something that I started yesterday afternoon. I just feel like um, we got to do a better job. Uh, I mean, we, we have this radio show. We're on the air for four hours a day. We speak, we speak, we speak, we take calls. I've got to get better at writing. I mean, I got to get more consistent at writing things and we're heading into the South Carolina primary and somebody reached out to me from the media last week and asked me what my take was on the primary. And I started thinking about it. They said, well, you ran with Nikki in 2010. Yeah. Um, I went back and looked over the weekend I think Nikki got about 695,000 votes. I got about 735,000 votes. Um, so I saw it with my own two eyes. Um, I actually put down some notes yesterday, and I'll, you know, I guess this would be access to top-secret information in the world of political punditry. But yesterday I put down some notes, and I like to kind of frame and, I don't know, characterize the conversation on my love for music, especially Springsteen and some of the other classic rocks what are the great rock it's not a called a it's not called a rock excuse me it's not called a, a drum riff it's a guitar riff it's called a it's called a drum feel did you know that i didn't a drum feel it's called a drum feel one, one of the great okay. drummers of all time one, one of the great drum uh well I mean, i'll give you an example in the air tonight i mean it's got this um That's it's got this yeah I mean, it's, it's, feel, I it's iconic i mean yeah. it's uh you know uh it requires rotator cuff surgery for about half the country my age when you hear that, when you start air drumming it. I've heard of Rick Beato use that term, though, drum fill before. There you go. So, so it's a guitar riff. It's a drum feel. Okay. Um, the reason I'm talking about this is I try to be creative in some of the writing. I know I'm not creative over the airwaves, but I try to institute a little creativity in my, uh, in my written word. So I was thinking about yesterday. Um, I mean, I did have a front row seat to that. I mean, I saw Nikki ascend. I saw Nikki go from struggling and fundraising, polling in single digits. Sarah Palin endorses Haley at the crescendo of the Tea Party movement, and the rest is history. Um, I mean, I saw that with my own two eyes. The reason I'm using Phil Collins, remember, um, what, is, what is the line, Rep? I saw it on time. There's a line in there. I know what you did. Because I saw it with my own two eyes. I mean, there's something to that oh. to that effect. And I, I went back and looked at the lyrics in the air tonight. It's before the iconic drum feel. Um, so I was using that as kind of a reference. There's a song that most my age know that includes one of the great drum feels of all time in the air tonight. Um, but before the drum feel, Josh, there's a line that says, uh, you know, I know what you did because I saw it with my own two eyes. I'm one of the few, I guess, that had a front row seat at Nikki's ascent. Nikki's becoming a major political player in the world, for that matter. UN ambassador, Boeing board, 
uh, presidential candidate, uh, someone considered to be uh, the face of the future of the uh, Republican Party. Um, and I just thought about some of the things that I learned during that process and some of the things that have evolved as a result of that of that process. Um, so I told the person who called me, I remember the media, I said, you know, Trump 65-35 on his best day, Nikki 60-40 on her best day. I stand by that. Or does she continue post, uh, you know, post South Carolina primary? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I know Nikki's ambitious. I know Nikki is very, very motivated. I know she is incredibly, incredibly um, disciplined. I, I just don't know where you go from here. But as long as people are spending money, there's one thing you'll learn about politics. I mean, if you'll pay to put their name in lights, they'll put you, they'll let you put their name in lights, rest assured. Um, so we'll find out in a couple of three weeks. Well, a couple of weeks now. When is the primary? The 24th. So in about, what, three weeks? That's less than three weeks. On a Saturday. It's on a Saturday. So a little less than three weeks, we'll have our South Carolina primary, and we'll find out where Nikki Haley goes uh, from here. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, you, woke, you woke me up, Ken, this morning when you said sports ends with the Super Bowl. And, of course, you've gone on now to really uh, bring out a few other uh, activities anyway. But, uh, you know, as a native of Darlington, you really opened my eyes because, you know, uh, not counting the silly Bush clash that they had, uh, we do have the uh, start of the NASCAR season, which kind of carries me through the summer and the great Augusta event they have there with the Masters, which is a golf tournament I do watch. Um, but anyway, I thought uh, you're sound real good to be, uh, you know, have stayed up all night reading that new immigration bill today. We're going to see, uh, the rhinos really come out as Langford and Cassidy and Graham and, uh, uh, try to sell this, sell this, sell this bill. And I certainly hope that the, um, the Republicans don't get rolled again by the Democrats and this bill passes because if it does, uh, in my opinion, uh, the Republican Party's lost all of its credibility. And so uh, I hope the House will resist and fight this, this Senate bill. And um, we're going to have a good, we're going to have a good summer. And uh, as the racing season starts, although they're going to spread the broadcast over about three or four different ways. And if you don't have streaming for a couple of them, you won't be able to see them. So NASCAR's, NASCAR today is not the NASCAR of the Kel Yarborough era when I grew up. But uh, anyway, uh, at least they still have gas-powered engines. <laughs> For now. Really? For now. For now. Yeah. It's still dark in western South Carolina. I'm sure you've got the sun coming up over the uh, studio there in Florence. But uh, anyway, y'all have a great day. Thank you. Appreciate that, Sam. Um, well, I was there, and I saw what you did. I saw it with my own two eyes. That's it. That's, That's the um, Yeah, but the, the song is known for its great uh, drum feel, not riff. Guitar riff, drum, feel. Um, I want to do this. I, I want to listen. Sam nailed it. I mean, you're going to see an all-full court press today by the globalist Republicans, the interventionist Republicans, trying to, I don't know, appease the masses and explaining how hard it was to get here, how this is the best we're going to get. It's a horrible bill. It's a horrible bill. And the only reason, the only reason a single Democrat has any interest in, you know, making a deal is the polling out of Iowa, New Hampshire. Once the election is over, they'll take credit. The Democrats will take credit for securing the border. They'll 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 probably in some way, shape, or form 
try to, I don't know, try to make some, take some measures according to the, um, to the legislation that gives them some political victory, some political momentum. There is no way Republicans should sign up, sign up for this. I mean, it's just, it's a bad deal. I mean, it's not just a bad financial deal. It's just bad. I mean, the, the, the verbiage, but, but I'll go back to what I said earlier, Reb. in the good old days, we're talking about the good old days of NASCAR In the good old days of politics, Langford Graham, our Senator Graham, uh, McConnell Schumer, they would have had closed door meetings with the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, NBC News, ABC News, the New York Times, and they would have said, look, here's the deal, and here's what the narrative needs to be. And all of a sudden, we've had this decentralization of media, and the, the establishment can't maintain its integrity. I mean, I, I know a couple of weeks ago, I rambled a lot around that issue, but the decentralization of media has forced the the establishment to expose who they really are. And Americans don't like them. I mean, they don't. They We, we never knew exactly who they were because the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times wouldn't tell us who they were. Well, it's a new day in NASCAR. It's a new day in college basketball. It's a new day in streaming and cable and satellite television. It's also a new day in ways the establishment tries to maintain its integrity because decentralized media doesn't let you control the message. I mean, the narrative gets out. People get the bill. I mean, regular average Americans aren't reading the bill. Some of these journalists on Twitter and, and Facebook, Instagram, I mean, they're reading the bill. Some of these websites, some of these, some of these podcasters, conservative podcasters, they're reading the bill. They're accurately reporting to a number of audiences what the bill really includes. And the majority of America Firsters aren't going to like it. They're doing the job that the media should well, I mean, the, be doing. The, the media decided to be a shield. And now we've got this decentralization of media that allows the narrative to be whatever we choose the narrative to be. Take a break. Back in a few. I'm not going to mislead my audience and tell you I read the bill verbatim, but I did read a kind of um, a fast Reddit, a skim Reddit. I mean, I, I kind of knew where to look. And we're not, I mean, so, some of the like the here unto, where thou, I mean, that, that's a bunch of, um, you know, uh, what, what am I trying to say here? That, that would be the um, formalities of government and policy and, and legislation. Um, here's what I do know as we speak this morning. This does not end catch and release. I mean, I know how to read some of the language. This does not end catch and release. This does not count unaccompanied minors. I mean, there's some specific language. About and, and I'll get to the counts in a second here. Um, here's something that bothers me. I mean, if Rev read it, I mean, if, if I went to that room with Rev and he said, "Hey, help me fix this equipment," I'd say, "I can't." I mean, I don't know how to do this. I mean, that that's his that's his sweet spot. That's his wheelhouse. Reading some of this stuff is kind of sort of my wheelhouse. So I do think I can decipher some of the intent here. It looks to me like they're trying to adjudicate all the cases in D.C. Any immigration case or hearing or challenge is going to be adjudicated in the very left-leaning courts of our nation's capital, very amnesty-friendly courts in our nation. Well, let's be honest, very open border-friendly courts in our our nation's capital. So those three things concern me. It does not end catch and release. It does not count unaccompanied minors. And the majority of cases that will be brought against this legislation will be adjudicated in the D.C. courts. Good luck with that if you're an America firster. Um, Here's what it does do. Um, It basically argues 
that um, the Department of Homeland Security can close the border. I mean, they can close the border if there are 5,000 or more illegal crossing attempts per day for seven consecutive days. I mean, they, they can take emergency action. I got no idea who counts it. It doesn't make clear. I don't have any idea who makes the accounting uh, for it. I don't know who interacts with the president or the executive branch about, hey, we've got, you know, we've, we've got 5,112 people for the last six days. I mean, if we have over 5,000 again, this trigger takes place and we close the border. I mean, it's, it's bizarre to me, but that's kind of the language that it says the Department of Homeland Security can close the border if there are 5,000 or more illegal crossing attempts per day for seven consecutive days. That triggers some emergency part of this legislation. Um, here's the cost of it. You ready? It's about $118 billion. I mean, the media will say $118 billion to secure the border. I mean, I've already seen a story this morning in the Washington Post. 118. Uh, the House says the $118 billion border security bill is DOA. I mean, Senator, excuse me, um, House member, Speaker, Speaker Lee. Johnson. Speaker Johnson. I'm sorry, Speaker Johnson has already said it's DOA. So I saw something on either the Washington Post or New York Times website this morning that, um, you know, America First Speaker says the, um, the immigration funding bill is DOA. Well, it's not an immigration funding bill, and here's how you know. It's $118 billion in total, $20 billion are for the border, $60 billion are for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $2 billion for conflict in the Red Sea, $5 billion for Indo-Pacific aggression. I mean, that's China. And then about $10 billion for humanitarian in Gaza, the West Bank, and, and Ukraine. Let me go over that again. <laughs> I just want to make sure I heard uh, item number two on the checklist there. $60 kind of, billion for Ukraine. Just kind of breeze right. Oh, yeah. Let's throw in six. So 20 for the border. Well, it'll be half the money's for Ukraine. I mean, it's $118 billion. We're told, don't believe them, but you're going to be told it's $118 billion to secure the southern border. It's not $118 billion to secure the southern border. It's $20 billion spent on securing the border. Now, once again, the $20 billion to secure the border will be in conjunction with the Department of Homeland Security only being able to authorize an emergency closing of the border if we exceed 5,000 illegal um, crossings per day for seven consecutive days. In other words, you could have 5,000 for six days and on the seventh day have 2,000 and it resets. I mean, there's another 5,000 illegal, another 5,000, another 5,000, oh, 2,000. So the clock resets again and they can't declare any sort of emergency. Department of Homeland Security can't declare any sort of emergency unless they have seven consecutive days of an excess of 5,000 illegal attempts. Once again, it does not end catch and release. It does not even count amongst the 5,000. It's not counting unaccompanied minors. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that's in the abstract, I guess. That's the children. Okay. And you know how it is about the, the children. And, and once again, the majority of cases are adjudicated in the um, in the D.C. courts. $20 billion is for the southern border. $60 billion for Ukraine. $14 billion for Israel. Two billion conflict in the in the Red Sea. I mean, that sounds to me like well, there's not a conflict there yet. But if you give us two billion dollars, we can figure out a way to start one. I mean, it's a military-industrial complex grab bag, is what it is. It's us five billion 
for Indo-Pacific aggression. I mean, I don't know if they mentioned China. I can't remember when I read that line item. I don't know. I don't think they say, you know, this is to mess around with China. But it says Indo-Pacific aggression. I mean, that's Taiwan and China in essence. And then 10 billion humanitarian aid to Gaza, the West Bank, and and Ukraine. It's not a border security bill. I mean, it's a, it's a military-industrial complex grab bag is what it is. It's a um, it, it's kind of this. If, if you really stick with me for a second, I am no general. I'm not a military-industrial complex expert, but I know politics fairly well. If you if you res, if you relax the sanctions, if you relax the sanctions on Iran, doesn't it stand to reason that Iran would have more cash flow? I mean, if we, I mean, the Biden administration relaxed the sanctions that the Trump administration had on Iran. We know that happened, right? So Iran becomes richer. I mean, they have a greater cash flow. The the greater cash flow empowers Iran. An empowered Iran is an agitated Iran. It's an aggressive Iran. And the next thing you know, Iran proxies kill American soldiers on the Jordanian-Syrian border. And you got to ask yourself, was that always the intent? I mean, I'm sorry, guys. We're to the point we got to question that. Did they relax the sanctions? Was the military-industrial complex behind convincing the Biden administration to relax the sanctions because they knew if they relaxed the sanctions, Iran's wealthier. They know a wealthier Iran is an emboldened Iran. They know an emboldened Iran is more likely to kill or, or target American assets. And then America has to respond accordingly. I mean, it's the most vicious cycle imaginable. And it's hard to offer as an alternative that the military-industrial complex would convince the Biden administration to make the world a better place so they could have to build more bombs and missiles and war arsenal. I mean, I'm there. I mean, I'm convinced that's what, that's what has happened, that the military-industrial complex, they're in the business of what? Building military equipment. I mean, they're, they're in the business of fighting wars. I mean, the more wars there are to be fought, the better their bottom line is. And when, when Iran is behaving, the military-industrial complex is not as lucrative. When Iran is a threat to the world, we better get to work building bombs and missiles. And Wall Street rewards Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas and Honeywell and, and General Dynamics. You know the suspects. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Our number is someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Hi, Mike. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, you're off to a pretty good start there, I would say, uh, with your sports report off the top of, uh, top of the hour. But uh, I that that bill is worth worthless. It's worse than worthless. It's the, about the only thing that they didn't do, but it could be in fine print of it um, that I. I, I certainly didn't get to is they didn't give the cartel members of congressional seats and senatorial slots. You know, they, there's just absolutely outrageous. It does nothing. They don't even mention the hundred thousand children that lot they've lost already or more. It's probably more, much more than a hundred thousand now. And, uh, it, and then they slather money all over the place. What what does that mean? Uh, ten ten billion to uh, Gaza. What can you do with that? I mean, where does that money go? Is it gonna? Uh, or 
we funding both sides of the war at this point. I think we ought to make uh, China or Iran at, at least fund one side of the, the conflict that's going on in the world. Uh, and I'll leave that to you. Um, Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, how is it now? I mean, if we've got a, a majority in the House and, you know, I mean, you got to get out. The Democrats aren't voting for this. I mean, they're just not. The Democrats, by and large, are open borders. I mean, George Soros and, and some of their big funders are open borders. They can't vote for, uh, even at, even at the at the trigger of 5,000 a day for seven consecutive days. That flies in the face of an open border. So, you know, I mean, every Democrat's not voting for this bill, and no Republican should. I mean, there, there shouldn't be a single Republican. Uh, James Langford was largely responsible for representing the Republicans' interest in some of the negotiations, I mean, he's a professing conservative from Oklahoma, but there are no deportations, but there are no, um, there's no ambition to have, you know, 100,000 deportations annually. It's not a conservative bill. It's not a bill good for America, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays as we try to get in gear on this Super Bowl week Monday morning, Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. Just some light reading last night, right? Yeah, just some light reading on a Sunday night. You care to give a prediction on the Super Bowl run? Oh uh, yeah, let's. Uh, ooh, I think I'm going to go with the San Francisco 49ers this week. Okay, good deal. We're, we're pulling for the 49ers because Debo is a former Gamecock, and we pull for former That's Gamecocks correct. since we don't have an NFL team. Um, I did read a good bit of the legislation last night. I've tried to go over it with our listeners this morning. I mean, it's a Senate bill, and and we're told now it's a non-starter in the House. Where are we exactly, Ryan? We're looking at it, yes, like you just said, a non-starter in the House. We're expecting the vote in the Senate to likely happen on Wednesday. Uh, But then after that, who knows what happens. First of all, we have to see if they even have the votes. And a number of Republicans have already come out and said their no's, and including some Democrats who've come out and said that they are no's as well. So it looks like it's still on pace to pass. But as of right now, you know, the Senate, even if it does get through there, the House is going to be a buzzsaw. Ryan, what is, I mean, do you have any idea what the stickiest parts of this is? I mean, when I read it, it's $118 billion, but it's $20 billion for border security, $60 billion for Ukraine. I don't know that we need to go much further than that when it comes to whether it passes in the House or not. Right. Just based off of some of the reactions that you're hearing, it's this rolling average that's annoying people, I think, and it's creating a lot of debate. So essentially at a seven-day average of 5,000 encounters per day or 8,500 encounters in a single day, then the Department of Homeland Security will be required to shut the border down and turn away anyone who crosses. So there'd be no new asylum claims that would be allowed uh, in anyone crossing or crossing illegally would be removed and and essentially there's this big debate over well why should it even get to 5,000 as it is that's going to be a major problem but someone else had pointed out to me too that you know based off the numbers that we've seen right now if this were to become law President Biden would have to shut the border down immediately because we're sitting at that threshold right now so uh, essentially the border will be closed down for a a period of time where (laughs) it would not be allowed to be back, back open until they get uh, the, the average number of encounters a day below a certain threshold. So if this bill were to pass, the border would essentially be closed down immediately. That's very interesting. Ron, thank you for the um, 
Thank you for the coverage. Have a great day, and we'll talk later this week, I'm sure. Sounds good, sir. Thank you so much. That's just kind of a, um, I mean, once again, Ryan read it. I tried to read it. I didn't read it in its entirety. I'm not going to mislead our listeners and say, I read it verbatim, and I know it up one side and down the other. No, uh, I read a good bit of it late yesterday afternoon, read a little more, you know, before I went to bed last night, and my high-water marks, the points that really catch my attention, does not end catch and release. I mean, I don't know how the Republicans, I mean, do you, do you, did they even lobby for that? I mean, did the Republicans, there are no deportations. I mean, there's zero mention of deportations in this bill. Does not count unaccompanied minors. The courts in D.C. will be where these cases were adjudicated. Good luck with that. Uh, and Ryan explained the 5,000, you know, illegal crossings a day for seven consecutive days that trigger some emergency executive action by the president where he shuts the border down. I mean, there's not a switch on the wall, guys. I mean, I don't think the most ardent, uh, I don't want to say the, the people who oppose immigration the most, well, let's say it that way. The people who oppose immigration the most, I don't think, believe we could just absolutely stop anybody from entering the country illegally. I mean, I think we've all accepted some imperfection in that regards would, that to that. should be the goal, though, should, it, should it? Yeah, I mean, that, that should be the I mean, goal. But, I mean, I don't think law. you believe that we can stop every illegal from ever coming into America. I mean, there, there's always going to be people who try and, and succeed to break our laws. But when you look at the funding, guys, I mean, what I've always tell you, money's the answer now is the question. It's not a border security bill. It's not a $118 billion border security bill. It's a $118 billion military industrial globalist contracting grab bag. I mean, that's what it is. It's $20 billion for border security. It's $60 billion for Ukraine. It's $14 billion for Israel. It's $2 billion for conflict in the Red Sea. Is there conflict in the Red Sea I don't know about? I mean, there could be. It's $5 billion for Indo-Pacific aggression. I mean, that's China, Taiwan. Um, I mean, we're going to do every damn thing we can in our power to convince China and Taiwan to go to war with one another. I mean, we're the instigators there. I mean, we're, if, if I'm in China and I'm a member of the Chinese Communist government and I see that as a part of the immigration reform bill, the U.S. Senate's passing, they're committing $5 billion to address Indo-Pacific aggression. I mean, that, 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 that's an instigative measure. I mean, to me, if I'm in China, I'm going like, really? I mean, they, they've got this issue on their southern border and they're including $5 billion in funding try to egg Taiwan and and China, you know, to go to war with one another, I mean, to, to, to reflect some sort of um some sort of aggression, and then ten billion humanitarian aid to Gaza, West Bank, and and Ukraine. It's a globalist grab bag. It's what you would expect to come out of the Senate when there aren't any America Firsters. I mean, Rand Paul was not involved in the negotiation of this bill. J.D. Vance was not involved in the negotiation of this bill. James Langford. And Mitch McConnell, from what I gather, were the kind of the, um, I mean, they spearheaded the Republicans' efforts, and both of those are interventionist globalist Republicans, and the bill reflects that. Let's go to the phone. Verd in Marlboro County. Good morning. Good morning, Ken. Uh, of course, a uh, different subject. Uh, three weeks from now, we got the uh, Republican presidential primary on uh, February the 24th. Uh, 
this week is the last week uh, or the 13th of February to get an absentee application. So more than likely you would have to have ordered it probably Friday. Uh, still going to have early voting going on February the 12th through the 17th at the Marlboro County Courthouse and also February 20th through the 22nd. And then we'll have Election Day on uh, February the 24th. Uh, last night I made a post and I came up with an idea and I'm calling it uh, – uh, five for America, and over the next three weeks, trying to encourage people over to PD and across the state of South Carolina to get five friends or five family members and commit that under one of the three ways you can vote over the next three weeks that you will get a commitment to get five people to go to the polls. Uh, because at the end of the day, this thing is about American, saving American. The only person that's going to be able to do that is President Trump and just trying to get a huge number put up in South Carolina and hopefully can end this primary uh, whatever you want to call it that Nikki uh, Haley's trying because she's not making much headway. But anyway, we need to get the thing over with where President Trump can concentrate on Joe Biden. And uh, I don't think the earth-shattering uh, primary that the Democrats hope for it materialized. They only voted 131,000 people in two weeks. Four years ago, it was 540,000. Uh, eight years ago, it was 373,000. So I don't think Mr. Clymer's plan to move the primary is what they were looking for, even though Biden won very handily over two very nominal candidates and stuff, but the people just didn't come out. Marble County only voted uh, 813 people in two weeks, and McCall, which has a great voting record over the state, uh, and Republican-wise, but in the Democrats, uh, one precinct in McCall, they only voted two people in 12 hours. So not not a very good uh, two weeks for the Democratic Party, and we need three great weeks for President Trump, three great weeks for America, and hopefully we can put this thing behind us and President Trump can concentrate on uh, whoever it is he's going to be running against uh, next November. I do not believe it will be Biden, and I think I've uh, been saying that for a year. I don't think Biden will ever be the nominee of the Democrat Party. Bert, let me ask you this. You're, you're close with the South Carolina Republican Party. Or, or should we be concerned at the state of the RNC? I mean, I saw some fundraising numbers. I've seen some deficit numbers, lines of credit being issued. I mean, I, I'm concerned that the RNC is failing its part. Uh, I'm like you, Ken. I saw all that the other day. And, uh, you know, that's the first I have heard uh, of how, how bad a financial shape we're in, you know. But uh, uh, Drew McKissick, who's a great friend and has done a great job in South Carolina, a great job with fundraising. If there's ever a time that the National Republican Party should retire Ron McDaniel, it is certainly now, because I don't think between the elections and the last three or four elections that we haven't done well, that she touted we were going to have red waves that never materialized. And then the fact that uh, she's at the top of the chain. And for that financial situation at the National Republican Party to be that bad, uh, I think it's time for her to go. And I think it's time for uh, Chairman Drew McKissick to be elevated to the national chairman of the Republican Party. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I want to shift gears. I want to go back to immigration in two seconds. But I want to, from October 2022 to November 2023, we're talking about basically a fiscal year. The the DNC spent, uh, I mean, there's some off supplies. Oh, here you go. The DNC spent in management consulting fees. This would be what I refer to as conservative ink. This is the, the skimmers. This is the freeloaders. These are the people that hate Donald Trump, to be honest with you. I mean, they, they fed at the trough of the RNC consulting contracts and managing contracts and uh, st strategy contracts. The Democrat National Com Committee spent $114,000 
from October 2022 to November 2023 in management consulting contracts, 114000 The RNC spent a million seventy-eight thousand. Um, floral arrangements. The uh, the DNC spent seven hundred ninety-five dollars. The RNC spent seventy-one thousand dollars. So when the consultants give these speeches at seminars, there's got to be this this extravagant floral arrangement to go along with that. The optics are important. Media booking consultants. The DNC spent zero. Nada. The RNC spent $116,000, but this is more revealing. You ready? In get-out-the-vote texting, I'm going to text Josh. Josh, uh, we see you're not a registered Republican, or you see you're, uh, I mean, whatever, the motivator to, to I mean, use text to try and reach out. I mean, it's voter, his turnout is what it is. I mean, it's ballot harvesting. It's a turnout machine. The, the RNC in get-out-the-vote texting, the RNC, Spent $66,000. The DNC, let me say that again, $66,000. Spent a million seventy-eight management consultants. Spent seventy on flowers. Spent only 86000 in voter turnout. The DNC spent $1,775,923. I mean, we're, we got so many people skimming off the RNC. And the DNC, give them credit. I mean, I disagree with about everything they stand for. They play to win. Now, but they spend their money on the battlefield, brother. They don't buy flowers. They don't rent limousines. I mean, they don't do all these nonsensical things to, uh, to kind of make people appear to be a rock star. I mean, they they do it to voter turnout. They do it in payroll and office supplies. Uh, let's do it as payroll. Uh, yeah, okay. In the DNC, their payroll's $25 million and the RNC, $15 million. I mean, that's manpower. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's voter turnout. That's ballot harvesting. That's whatever it takes to win in these counties, in these states, in these cities. And we're spending our money on management consulting, floral arrangements, limousine service, and media booking candidates. I mean, they're putting money where, where it really matters, and that is driving voter turnout. Rona McDaniel has been an abject failure as RNC chairman. She, I mean, if Trump loses... With, with Biden's approvals where they are, with the economy where it is, and I don't care what these eggheads with, um, with charts say. I mean, the economy's not affordable. It's not affordable. That's what people can relate to. Um, I mean, if Trump doesn't win in 2020, it's, I mean, in 2024, it's her fault. I mean, it's probably her fault in 2020. It'll certainly be her fault in 2024. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. A lot of nice flowers, limousine rides, and uh, and management consulting fees is how you win elections. No, that's not <laughs> how you win elections. We got to get some killers in the RNC. I don't mean literally, but we got to get some people who understand that this is a kind of a rough and tumble sport. It's a blood sport, to be honest with you. It's almost anything goes. I mean, if you think the SEC football is big and bad, you, I mean, imagine national yeah, you politics. Bet, you better play to win. But, I mean, we're not. And we're we're learning not. a lesson. We're not. We'd rather have a pretty stage and a fancy consultant driven by a chartered limousine. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Kid, you know what I'm going to say. They aren't. They're, they're, they're as smart as you and I are. They're, they're not incompetent. They're corrupt. And, you know, I, and you were talking about the military thing. You're dead all right. And then I was uh, listening to something off over the weekend, and then and this, they hit this multi-pronged. I mean, 
of the Tucker Carlson where he was interviewing the guy. A lot of you guys had to see it. But basically what it is is Big Farmer. You remember you used to say Pfizer is paying for the news, kid? I do. I still believe that. Well, they are. I mean, the guy was a pharmaceutical executive. So they're paying for the news. So the news is in there. Then you got these big agriculture on the other end. Basically, making it where the whole country's drinking all the Coca Cola they can, all the processed foods they can, and all of this other crap tied in with the government. We all, everybody, you got these kids that are getting fat. They got pre diabetes. You got the blood pressure. You can say you got the statins. You got diabetes. You got the dang old, uh, what's the other thing you get? You got blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol. They, uh, cholesterol. So you got all this stuff there, and they never cure it, brother. So if you're trying to destroy a country, what do you do? You make 80% of the country sick. I had a doctor tell me before COVID, he goes, Elbury, 75% of this country is already sick. It was done on purpose. We weren't all running around with diabetes. We weren't all suicidal. Hell, the NAACP is a paid, whatever they call it, for that dang old drug they give that used to be for diabetes, and they give to people that they lose the weight. You know what I'm talking about, that shot, so you don't have to exercise or diet. The NAACP is getting paid by them, and if, they, and if you say that that medicine, which is dangerous for you, is um, should be given free, then you are a racist. You see, I mean, they are evil and playing us like fools. So if you're a doctor and you're in the pharmaceutical stuff and all that thing, and, and all of a sudden, 90% of the country starts exercising and eating right. Well, guess what? Pharmaceuticals and doctors, they ain't making that money they used to make, are they? I mean, this is evil from top to bottom. And, the, and that cathedral you're talking about, the, the industrial complex, the, you know, the military industrial complex, the government, none of this is incompetence. It is just pure, flat evil and this thing gets really really deep and in the weeds but you got to see it for what it is it is evil what the and they're all tied in together i mean and the politicians that we you know they're evil they're they're just they're there they are right in there with it and they're poisoning us left and right and if you sit there and say anything about it well you know what happens you get called this and called that how you get thrown in jail but it's definitely, I'm sure some of your other people saw the thing with Tucker Carlson, if you go on X, uh, you probably saw it. Uh, but anyway, it's just, we're just, and we're so stupid to think that any of these people have our best interests at heart, from the pharmaceuticals to the government to the people that manufacture our food. Crap, man, we just get daggone attacked from all sides, and somebody needs to wake up the other half of this country and realize we're in this crap spot together, man. Anyway, thank thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. This would be an interesting poll question. I mean, on, on a scale of conspiracy theories, I don't think Breeze would mind me saying this. He'd be a 10. I mean, I, I mean, I, and I mean that. I mean, I text with Breeze. I talk to Breeze. Breeze. I've known Breeze pretty much all my life. Um, I mean, Breeze can be a bit crazy, but he ain't dumb. I'll assure you of that. Uh, very thoughtful, very well read. I know he got, got a bit of a, a little bit like me, got a stick, you know, that, that he comes up with from time to time. Um, but in a in a world of conspiracy theories, 
what is an acceptable percentage to genuinely believe? I mean, it, the, you know, the the Taylor Swift as a psyop. I, I don't. I mean, that so what? I mean, if she is or not, doesn't matter to me. It matters to me if Pfizer is buying the news. It matters to me if the military industrial complex is behind some of the Iran proxies. And I'm not talking about, I mean, think about this guys. It is a conspiracy theory, but doesn't it make sense? I mean, there's some conspiracy theories that make absolutely no sense, I mean, they're not coherent. Why, why would you say that? What's the advantage of this or that or the other? But if, if Trump comes along and places v- very, very aggressive restrictions on the Iranian economy and Iran behaves for a while, I mean, is a is, is peace with Iran good or bad for the military industrial complex? I mean, is a is a very stable and predictable world good or bad for the military industrial complex? Isn't it better if the military industrial complex convinces the American public that Putin is out for world dominance and 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 you can't trust China and we better arm Taiwan? And you better keep your eye on Iran. Which is good for that business. I mean, peace you know. and stability are terrible for. I mean, I've said it a million times. War and disease are unbelievably lucrative, especially operating in conjunction with government order or government edict. So, I mean, okay, it's a conspiracy theory to say that the Biden administration had been encouraged by the military-industrial complex to lax the restrictions or relax some of these sanctions on Iran, Iran, when you when you relax the sanctions, stick with me, Josh. When you relax the sanctions, Iran is in a better cash flow position as a nation. I mean, they've got a lot more money coming in post Biden than they did, you know, pre Biden. In other words, Trump put some pretty strict sanctions on on Iran, and they behave for the most part. Well, now all of a sudden, the Biden administration gets elected, and they relax some of the sanctions. Iran has more money coming in. The money gives them the ability to be empowered. They get more aggressive because they're empowered. They hire some proxies or have a hand in the proxies that kill the American soldiers. And America has to respond in some way, shape, or form. I mean, that, okay, that's a conspiracy theory. But isn't it, I mean, shouldn't it be believable? I mean, if you're in the business to sell and manufacture weapons, and Iran, China, and Russia are all behaving. There's nothing to see here with Putin. I mean, if Tucker Carlson comes back from his interview with Putin and says, I mean, this this guy's a dictator, but he's not a madman. I mean, he's not after world domination. I mean, the American military-industrial complex in conjunction with the government have tried to convince all of us that China's after world domination. Russia's after world domination. When the truth is we're after world domination. I mean, we're an empire. I mean, we're the greatest empire man has ever known, probably, in the grand scheme of things. But we're told by certain powerful voices that if we don't do all these things in regards to Iran and the Middle East and Russia, the world is a dangerous place. What if the world's not as dangerous as we've been led to believe? I mean, the world's going to always be a dangerous place. But what if the world's not as dangerous as many Americans have been led to believe? What happens to the military-industrial complex? I mean, look at the bill, the $118 billion border security bill, guys. I mean, the $118 billion border security bill that should be DOA in the House includes $20 billion for border security, 
$60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $2 billion for conflict in the Red Sea. That's a new one. I didn't know we had a conflict in the Red Sea. <laughs> it might make one. Well, let's start one. Let's spend $2 billion to start a conflict in the right. Red Sea. And then we need $100 billion to defend ourselves for this conflict we created in the Red Sea. Indo-Pacific China, $5 billion. I mean, it doesn't say China. It says Indo-Pacific aggression. I mean, that's China. That's all that is. And then $10 billion in humanitarian aid in Gaza, West Bank, and Ukraine. It's a military-industrial complex grab bag is what it is. It's, it, it's a globalist piece of legislation. Throw in a little amnesty, too. Well, I mean, yeah, but, but <laughs> the majority of the bill, I mean, I, I get the language in the bill. The, the, the text of the bill is largely about border. But what have I said a hundred times? Follow the money. The money's not being spent. The majority of negotiation has been about amnesty or not. Um, you know, uh, adjudicating cases in place X or place Y or not. But none of the money is being spent on the border. And at the end of the day, Congress appropriates and legislates. Appropriations are more important than legislation. I mean, it's it's just, it's, I'm not saying everything is a conspiracy, but damn it, a lot are. A lot are. One, one of the chief, chief architects on the Republican side of this debate has been um, James Langford of, of Oklahoma. Josh, can we listen to Fox News live? Uh, let's cut in if yeah, we don't mind. Langford's on, being interviewed on Fox News. Fox yeah. Yeah. It, it's really ridiculous when we go on the backside of December. What just happened when we had 10 and 12,000 people a day coming across? And this authority is a 5,000 authority to say if you get to 5,000, which we've been there every single day except for seven in the last four months, that it completely closes the border down. It deports everyone. It changes the paradigm from right now what the Biden administration is doing is catching and releasing everyone to actually catching and deporting everyone. It literally flips the script on it. I have people saying, well, I don't want to do that at 5,000. I want to do that at 3,000. Say, well, fine, we can do 3,000. But right now, every day we're at 5,000. It doesn't matter between the two. We've got to be able to have something that mandatorily deports everyone rather than actually releases everyone. That's what this does. Some people are thinking that this is somehow like counting 5,000 people in every day and releasing them. That, that's absurd. We change the asylum laws. We increase detention beds. We double the deportation flights. Uh, we uh, add ankle monitors for people that are actually coming through that do these family groups that come through so we can track any individual that when we don't have capacity right. there's all the things that we build into this to make this a much stronger system gaps that are in the law get closed in this structure so you're saying even people who have come through and they actually fit the demand and can get in that counts including people right. that are get rejected that counts so when you hit That's that right. 5000 number everything shuts down almost like the stock right. market when there's too much trading they'll shut it down to the next day and you're saying if this was in place now the border would be shut down that's correct. The border would be shut down. Not only did the border be shut down today, it had been shut down every single day the last four months, and we'd have been turning people around. Instead, actually, people have been released into the country. If this would have been in place four months ago, we'd have had a million fewer illegal immigrants into our country right now. Also, uh, there's some text in there that says the president does have some discretion to open up the border after it's shut down uh, and, and not go by these rules. Is that true? 
So it, again, we're back to the crazy details of this of people that are throwing stuff in there just trying to be able to attack a proposal that actually closes the border down. Yes, there's a discretionary piece on this, but it's a mandatory close down. They've got 275 days in the next year that has to be closed down. There is some discretion for the president to be able to reopen it, 45 of those. If we have something like a hurricane come through Central America, something like that, we're trying to be able to manage a natural disaster. But it's not like just a random turnaround on this. And I've had folks that have said, hey, the the Secretary of Homeland Security would have those authorities. So would every president. So would, you know, a, a Chad Wolf in a future Trump administration would have authority. So the, the key thing here is changes the asylum laws, builds more wall, adds more detention beds, adds more deportation flights, uh, changes this 10-year backlog that we're currently in now to weeks before people are actually deported. That's what the bill really does. All right. So the main thing that you got, you believe one of the main things is asylum changes. Now, the criteria to get into our country, you need to do what? So right now, if you walk across the border today, you can say, I have fear in my country, and you'll be released into the country for 10 years. Under this bill, you walk across the border and say, I have fear in my country. They say, prove it. You've got to have a higher standard of evidence. And then they say, they're going to check your criminal record. They're going to say, could you have internally relocated into another place in your own country, which by far most people could? Did you, could you have stopped somewhere along the way right. and actually remained there? If any of those are true, then you're deported immediately. Instead, today, they're going to be released for 10 years under this bill, they would be deported quickly on it. But not unaccompanied minors and not families. They get ankle monitors and get to stay, right? Well, they get ankle monitors, but they actually go through this higher standard. They don't get to stay. They go through this higher standard. They immediately have their processing within weeks, and then they are deported as well. Uh, the difference is it's very difficult to be able to actually um, uh, hold all of these families in that position, so you've got to find another way to be able to do it. So this bill addresses that. Right now, again, those families are released for 10 years. In this structure, it would be weeks, and then they would be deported. So people have got to decide on this. Do I want everyone in the country, unlimited numbers, what we have now, or do we want to have a faster, stronger system that we're actually deporting people? All right, so let's talk about the NGOs, uh, the Catholic Charities. They get huge money to house and provide, uh, and provide accommodations to illegal aliens who are trying to get into this country. You put $1.4 billion into this. Uh, that is an area in which I know Republicans are upset about. Can you want to expand on that? Yeah, it is interesting. I have some folks that are upset about trying to get humanitarian aid to people that are struggling on it. I, I get that. We want to be able to, we're Americans. We provide food and water to people and don't just leave them in the desert to be able to die. But I would also say that aid is also attached to our beds. So here's how we attach these two things together. So to be able to get that economic assistance actually got out, that means the Biden administration, before that assistance goes out at the end of it, that means they've got to add more deportation flights. They've got to add more uh, detention beds. They've got to add more ICE officers. They have to add more Border Patrol officers. Right. They have to actually implement these things before those final dollars go out. So those things are attached. That's actually a forcing mechanism to say right. you want those dollars to go out, you've got to actually start deporting people. So here's what Senator Mike Lee said. Not only does he say you need three weeks to read through it, he said no self-respecting senator should agree to vote on a 370-page bill this week. Any 41 senators can prevent the bill from proceeding. If you agree that senators should have this bill for at least a few weeks and certainly more than a few days, before voting on it, say so. Uh, you understand where he's coming from, right? Don't you guys have a procedural vote this week? Are you going to vote on the bill by the end of the week? So we actually have this bill came out uh, yesterday, Sunday. Uh, it, the first procedural vote is Wednesday, and that procedural vote is literally just 
open it up to be able to go through it and to be able to say, are we going to debate it this week? That's what Senator okay. Lee is actually talking about. It's interesting that he said he's already opposed to it. He needs three weeks to be able to read it, but he's already opposed to it. Uh, so, uh, again, people have got to be able to read it, go through it themselves. Don't just go off a Facebook post somewhere what the bill says. This dramatically changes asylum. It dramatically changes deportations. We no longer have a 10-year backlog. It builds right. more wall. Those are the key things that it actually does. But read it for yourselves. Don't just believe what's online. Just, here's what uh, Speaker Johnson said. I have seen enough. This bill is even worse than we expected. It won't come close to any of the border catastrophe the president has created. As the lead Democrat negotiator proclaimed, under this legislation, the border never closes. If this bill reaches the House, it will be dead on arrival. Your thoughts? Yeah, un unfortunately, he would step out and be able to see that right away before, obviously, he had had a chance to be able to read it as well and to be able to go through it. The key aspect of this, again, is are we as Republicans going to have press conferences and complain the border's bad and then intentionally leave it open? After the worst month in American history in December, now we've got to actually determine, are we going to just complain about things or are we going to actually address and change as many things as we can? If we have the shot, and it's amazing to me, if, if I go back two months ago and say we had the shot under a Democrat president to dramatically increase detention beds, deportation flights, lock down the border, to be able to change the asylum laws, right. to be able to accelerate the process, no one would have believed it. And now no one actually wants to be able to fix it and says, I don't want to even debate it. I don't want to discuss it. We have to decide right. as Republicans, what are we going to actually do about the border? Leave it open or actually leave it closed? Here is what uh, Senator Speaker, excuse me, Speaker Johnson said yesterday on Meet the Press. We are willing to work with the Senate. I am not disclosing that. And I've been very consistent for the 100 days that I've had the gavel. We're willing to work, but they have to be serious about it. If you only do a few of those components, you are not going to solve the problem. And Kristen, that's not a Republican talking yeah. point. That's what the sheriffs at the border, the, the Border Patrol agents, the deputy chief of, of U.S. Border Patrol, a 33-year veteran of the agency, told us. He said it's as though we're administering an open fire hydrant. He said, I don't need more buckets Let like the president's proposed. I need to stop the flow. And we know how to do that, but Joe Biden is unwilling to do it. So if you could answer him, what would you say? Yeah, I would say we do have to be able to decide here because at one point I'll hear people say we don't need more laws. The president has all the authorities they need. And then the other side say we need more than the laws that this is actually giving. So, again, we have to decide is this a matter of we have all the authorities that are needed. We need to do nothing or we need to do everything because he doesn't have the president doesn't have enough authority. At the end of the day, right. let's do everything we can. We do have a Democrat president. We have a Democrat Senate. We have a right. Republican House. This is a moment to solve as many things as we can and then keep working on the next Thing. Senator Langford, what gets people nervous is that we watch this president, I think you agree with me, do more damage to the border than any president in history. He won't even go see it during a time in which it's uh, broken. He doesn't want to hear about it. The vice president ignores it. And they're all in support of this bill. Chuck Schumer's in support of this bill. Only Senator Padilla out in California has been skeptical. And a lot of Republicans instinctively said, what am I missing? Why are they in support of this bill? Yeah. Well, I would also tell you that there are liberal protesters in D.C., and if you come around the Capitol, there's posters put up all over the place from liberal activists saying stop this Republican immigration bill as well. There are plenty of liberal activists that are actually furious about this because it's locking down asylum. It's changing the, the uh, parole. I mean, the reality, what Langford is basically saying, I want you to hear a lot of that because, I mean, there's nothing earth-shattering. He's a co-sponsor of the legislation. He's worked hard at it. You would expect him to advocate and tell you all the the good points. I disagree with the one thing he says. I don't see where they're obligated to deport. He's talking about asylums and 
and deportations. It does address some of the asylum issues, but I don't, I don't see, I mean, my reading and, um, and interpretation is different than he is on deportation. Now, once again, he is a, you know, he's been in the room. I mean, he's helped make the sausage, so to speak. But, but I think in Josh and this is what they're asking is, do you trust the establishment Republicans and the Democrats to implement another government, another government program? I mean, that's kind of an essence. And, and you, I mean, to me, that's where you start. Establishment Republicans, McConnell and Langford, I think Romney's had some input on this. Lindsey Graham, I'm sure, has had some input on this. Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, or somebody at the Biden uh, White House is representing in some of these negotiations. And anytime those people get in a room, I just feel like I'm going to get screwed. I mean, I'm sorry. I just, I always do. My, my political proclivities and persuasions are different than, than theirs. And I just don't believe that the majority of Republican rank-and-file voters today trust the establishment Republicans and the Democrats of Washington, D.C. when they close the door and work on an immigration bill for several weeks. And out of that comes, and here's what I know. Now, now he says differently. Um, it does not address catch and release. Well, it does not end catch and release. We can we can argue some of the asylum, some of the, there's some language in there that I perceive to be very squishy. Um, it does not count unaccompanied minors. He admitted that. Um, the court will be, the the courts that will decide some of the legal disagreements will be adjudicated in D.C. But the most important part of this bill, and I don't know why, um, what's his name? Uh, Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, Brian Kilmeade. I don't know why Kilmeade didn't ask if it's 180, if it's $118 billion immigration bill, why is only $20 billion being spent on the border? Why is $100 billion being spent on Ukraine, Israel, conflict in the Red Sea, Indo-Pacific aggression, China, and humanitarian in Gaza, West Bank, and Ukraine? That's, I mean, we, we've got laws on the books. I mean, enforce the laws we have on the books. Uh, the Biden administration could turn back to the Trump era, and we would have a much more secure border without passing another bill. There are enough laws on the books in America today. If the Biden administration re-implemented what the Trump administration had done, I mean, we'd have a more secure border. I don't know about enforcement. I mean, I have no idea what Biden has recommended to some of the Homeland Security agents and, and some of the Border Patrol. I don't have any idea or they'd be aggressive or passive or, you know, uh, how involved they are with there's, I mean, I'm hearing stories about the um, the Border Patrol. I mean, the rank-and-file Border Patrol agents seem to be more on Texas's team than they are the federal government's team on some of the wire, some of the razor wire cut, put back up, cut, put back up, and whatnot. But it just seems to me Langford can say what he wants to. Lee can say what he wants to. Uh, Paul can say what he wants to. Um, Johnson, the speaker, can say what he wants to. The money speaks louder than anything to me. And if it's $118 billion and only $20 billion is being spent on the border, it's not an immigration bill. I mean, it's a, it's a globalist grab bag. I'm sorry, it just is. You've got Ukraine, Israel getting far more than, um, than is being spent on the border. $60 billion. Here's an interesting fact. You ready? The Marines' entire budget, FY23, was about $55 billion. I read that last night. The entire U.S. Marines 
budget. I mean, that's one of the um one of the branches of the armed services. It was about fifty five billion in one immigration bill. We're sending Ukraine sixty billion. I mean, how are Marines not offended by that? I mean, how are Americans not offended by that? In an immigration, I mean, if it's a globalist grab bag, call it that. I mean, if it's an interventionist dream, call it that. <laughs> that's just harder to sell. Well, I'm sure it's that. an immigration bill that spends 20 of the $118 billion on securing the border, and I doubt wh- whether some of the efforts, efforts will prevail. It's a, and once again, I think you've got to ask yourself, I can't answer this for you, when establishment Republicans like Senator Langford Senator Romney, Senator, um, you know, uh, Lindsey Graham and Senator uh, Chuck Schumer, when they go behind closed doors and work with the Biden administration, do you trust them? It's another government program. I'll answer that. Well, and no. I, I think the majority of Americans will answer that. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. A lot of conversation this morning about immigration. A lot of conversation this morning about border control, but the majority of the conversation has been about what? Money. I mean, it always is. Money is the mother's milk in American politics. You can be a fabulous candidate, but if you're not well-funded, you're normally not going to win. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. I mean, I, I know some examples of really good candidates with really good agendas or platforms or issues of which to run on, but they couldn't raise money, and they weren't successful. In that um, endeavor, that requires a certain amount of money. I'm concerned. I mean, I make no bones about it. I'm a Trump supporter, unapologetically supportive of Donald Trump. I'm a South Carolinian. A former governor of South Carolina is running. And um, and I'm still as Trump-ish as I've ever been because <laughs> I think the political scene needs a degree of disruption. But when I really start considering where we are in the grand scheme of things, the money concerns me. I mean, Nikki and Trump have fought for you know, X number of dollars from historic Republican donors. Trump's not a darling of the donor class, while Joe Biden and the Democrats are just kind of stockpiling money with a fairly easy path forward to the nomination. Political strategist and the founder and CEO of Freedoms Fund at USA, Ashley Smith-Thomas, is with us this morning. Good morning, Ashley. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. So how important is the deficit the Republicans find themselves in fundraising in this presidential cycle? That's a really great question. So according to Fox News report, President Biden's re-election campaign had ended in 2023 with nearly $117 million in his coffers, which was more than his potential GOP rivals. So former President Trump's campaign committee, they actually closed out the year with $33 million, and Nikki Haley ended 2023 with around $15 million. So the campaign totals, though, are it's just simply a partial picture because Trump donors contributed a total of $188 million in 2023 to support his various committees. Um, when it came to January 1st, across the board, Trump and his outside political groups had around $65 million cash on hand. Um, but what's interesting is that there's been concerns around of the amount of money that's been coming into President Trump's campaign is the fact that, according to Wall Street Journal report, that two-thirds of that money has actually been spent in legal bills because he's facing four pending criminal cases this year, two of it being in regards to the 2020 election and then handling classified documents upon legal 
leaving office. So that has been where a large portion of his funds have been going toward. Um, but Nikki Haley, she had actually, even though she won third place in Iowa and second in New Hampshire, one week after the New Hampshire primary, Haley's campaign raised more than $5 million within that one week, according to a Fox News report. So to your point in your opening statement in that Nikki Haley has really been um, bringing in that donor class money. She's really been able to bring in those mega GOP donors. Um, But what's really unique when you look at this race between Trump and uh, Nikki is that it's more of the donors that are giving to Trump's campaign. Even though he's trying to woo some of these top mega donors of the GOP, um, it's been more of just your everyday Americans. It's your working class that has been donating to President Trump. And so when you look at the $20, the $100, all of that adds up in donations that are being given to his campaign. And I think that He's really showing this stark contrast in that he's resonating with the everyday American people, while Nikki is more uh, bringing in your, quote, elitist-type donors. Ashley, do we have any idea if the mega donors come home when Trump secures the nominee? I mean, I'm in South Carolina, and I can tell you, on Trump's best day is 65-35, on Nikki's best day is 60-40, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. Do we expect those mega donors to get back on board at some point in time? I I don't know. That's a really good question because um, I believe it was last week that there was a big fundraiser in which uh, they're in Florida. And during that fundraiser, apparently what ended up happening was that it gave the opportunity for Nikki Haley's campaign to pitch to these potential donors as well as Trump's uh, campaign to pitch to these potential donors. And one of the things that his campaign advisor had stated was that um, President Trump, even though he has alienated some of these GOP top donors, he's trying really hard to bring them back into the fold. He's trying to mend those relationships and hopes that they will get back behind him and support his campaign. But then you look at what his campaign national press secretary stated. She released a statement saying, quote, President Trump's campaign is fueled by small donor donations across the country from every background who are sick and tired of crooked Joe Biden's record high inflation, wide open border crime and chaos. So President Trump continues to dominate Biden in every single battleground poll, and we're more confident than ever he will take back the White House in November, end quote. So uh, he's doing his part to woo those mega donors, um, but really I believe that the focus is going to be more of just your everyday American people. Okay, last question, and I'm asking you to be strategist for a second. I do this sure. a lot, and I think I've kind of sort of got it figured out, but you, 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 you got to, I mean, this is my angle and my, and my take on it. I believe that the donor class in the Republican Party and the rank-and-file voter have always had these non-mutual interests. In other words, the donors want certain things, the voters want other things, but it's asymmetrical now. I mean, the the donors are wanting an agenda that is not in the voters' best interest, and the voters are aware that the majority of donors' interests are not in their best interest. How do you—I mean, I understand somewhat misaligned. I understand— uh, we're singing the same song, just not in the same chord, not in the same tune. I think the Republican Party finds itself today in an asymmetrical relationship, donor and voter. Am I overstating um, that? 
No, I don't believe so. I think that we are really seeing this contrast. And I think because President Trump is running his campaign, in my opinion, a little more strategically um, than compared to 2020, it's really showing this stark contrast. Because I think after what happened in the 2020 election, it's really caused a lot of American people to be um, opening up their eyes to what is going on. And, and I think in terms of just even language and things that's being discussed within the past four years, it's been, okay, it's the everyday Americans who are against the elitist um, mega donors. And so we're starting to see this stark contrast that is happening and people are starting to question everything. And I completely agree with you. I don't think that you're, you're, um, uh, you know, overstepping or anything like that, I, I'm in complete agreement with you in that there is a stark contrast taking place and that the everyday voters are waking up looking at, okay, wait a second. And the, and it's true. A lot of your mega donors do control a lot of the politicians. And a lot of the politicians tend to be more beholden to those who give to their campaign versus really what is right, and that is to uh, be held by their constituents. So that's where, when you look at on the House and the Senate side, some of these politicians are more beholden to their donors versus in their own constituent base, which then the constituents get frustrated because they don't feel like they're being heard. Well, it's because they're being controlled by mega donors. And so with that being said, I think people are waking up, which is making this race incredibly interesting to watch. Very well explained. Ashley, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Let's do some math real quick, guys, on the fly. You ready to have a call? Mm -hmm. Uh, We do. Okay, let's go to the phone. I want to be respectful of their time. Joe in Hartsville. Hi, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. The the biggest thing about this immigration bill is that it codifies illegal immigration between the ports of entry. It, It does nothing to stop that. Right now, the law says the only way you come into this country legally or illegally is through the ports of entry. And do you think the cartels are really that stupid that once it gets above 5,000, they're going to shut down the border? So what's going to stop them from keeping it to 4,000 or 3,500? Hell, that's over 2 million people a year. So it codifies that into law instead of you must come through the ports of entry. So you can put 100,000 more Border Patrol, but if all they're doing is processing people between the ports of entry, you're not gaining anything. That that was my biggest takeaway from this whole thing. And it's, they're not telling the American people that because the law says you cannot come across our border unless it's through the ports of entry. So they'll just fly them in, they'll bust them in through the ports of entry, and then they'll keep doing what they're doing between the ports. Oh, it's just 5,000, we shut them. Anybody with, with any brains at all will see that they'll take that down to 3,500 and do it in perpetuity and just think about when you file your taxes right now, it's costing each taxpayer about $1,050 a piece to fund all these illegal immigrants. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. I mean, I think, I mean, philosophically, I mean, I've tried to explain some of the issues I have with the details. Didn't read it verbatim. I mean, I've not read the 370 pages. I feel like I understood some of the guts of the legislation and I did read the majority of that, highlighted a few things, circled a few things, have questions about 
a few things. May try to reach out to Congressman Russell Fry today or tomorrow to see if we can um, get him to do another visit. I know he comes every other Friday, but this may be important enough to try and get Russell to come on back to back and really explain where he stands. Um, they're going to have a, a procedural vote Wednesday. Um, but, but I think you've got to ask yourself, the majority of you aren't going to read 370 pages. I mean, Joe's a little more studious than most when it comes to reading the actual text of the legislation. But I think in theory, you asking yourself, do you trust establishment Republicans and Democrats to make a deal that is in the American worker's best interest? I mean, I don't. Once again, I'd like to give the benefit of the doubt to Langford and Schumer and McConnell, but I don't. I mean, I find them to be globalist, interventionist, kind of in their DNA. Is it something that they believe in, or is it something they're paid to believe in? I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to look at Langford and Schumer and McConnell's financial disclosures to see where the majority of their contributions have come from. I mean, I don't know how well they've done with the Raytheons of the world. I don't know how well they've done with the uh, McDonnell Douglases of the world. I'm not saying Raytheon doesn't have a right to participate. Of course they do. The First Amendment and the Roberts Court guarantees them um, that right, petitioning their government. They should petition their government for their best interest. But I think Congress has a job to not look after the military-industrial complex or, or the mindset of a globalist interventionist, but rather the safety, security, prosperity, and life of the American worker. And I just I think this is bad for the American worker, bad for the American family, bad for the American uh, way of life. It is a, to me, it's kind of a globalist grab bag. I mean, when you disguise $118 billion as an immigration bill and only 20 of the $118 billion are spent on immigration, that makes me suspicious. When, when, you, when you say, okay, who was behind um, the, um, the language? Who was beside, I mean, who did the markups? In other words, we, we've got a naked bill. And we start marking the bill up. And you got an amendment, a markup, and an amendment, and a markup. I mean, this is informal. This is not a formal amendment. But somebody in the room says, hey, I'll go along with this if you'll go along with that. I've talked to the White House, and they'll agree to this if we'll agree to that. McConnell's got his, his crowd. I mean, you know, um, Langford's got his crowd. Schumer's got, got his crowd. You and I will never be privy to those conversations about what the priorities were of that crowd. But at the end of the day, in theory, it is an establishment Republican Democrat deal, cut it behind closed doors where, you know, a little bit of the money is spent on immigration and the majority is spent in aggressive foreign conflict. That's just not something I want to see. If Biden were to go back to Trump era policies, the border would be more secure. And, and, and once again, I don't know why we need another government program and, and, and what Langford basically says, we're uh, the implementation of another government program, and it goes into these asylums and, and catch and release and uh, some of the deportation. I mean, I, that, that's a lot of political theater as far as I'm concerned. And these guys are good at speaking. I mean, they're good at trying to explain things without really telling you the truth. I mean, that's kind of the art of being a good politician. I'm going to explain this thing to you in the most favorable, well imaginable, but if you have legitimate questions... I probably don't have good answers, so I'll talk in circles. I mean, that's kind of the craft of, of American politics today. The beauty of today, and, and we started the show with this, Josh, and I know we got to take a break. The beauty of this today, and the reason it's harder to pass legislation like this, 
McConnell and Schumer would have gone to friendlies at the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, NBC, ABC, and CBS, and they would have said, hey, here's what our narrative is going to be. Can you guys support us? Yeah, we've already named the bill yeah. the opposite of what it actually is, but now you guys have to help us sell the details. And and if you guys will help us sell the details, the American people will be misled, but they won't know they've been misled. We've had a decentralization of media, and all of a sudden, Twitter has these smart people with 5 million followers and 10 million followers, and they're digging into the minutia of this bill and their own Langford's page saying, BS, I mean, you're not telling us the truth about this. So there's always been this, this kind of deal that the media historically has had with the power brokers in Washington. It doesn't matter what the truth is. Here's what the narrative needs to be. And now they can't control the narrative. And because they can't control the narrative, they're losing their legitimacy. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Rujan in Darlington. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, listen, you got to these, these politicians have got to be crazy to think that the American people, especially in, in, in today's environment where they can get access to information, are going to go for a bill that's called an immigration bill where only, only less than 20 percent of the monies in that bill are going to go to immigration. I mean, you've, you've got, I mean, I'm, I've, I've got friends and family up in Boston right now, and they are absolutely livid that they closed down the, the, uh, the rec center to house immigrants. They've got a school up there that they closed down and put the kids on uh, uh, distance learning because they want to house immigrants there. I'm looking at, you know, things out in Washington, Washington State where they took $34 million and took that, that's out, that out of COVID money and given it to the immigrants in the form of, you know, vouchers and debit cards and things like this. And I'm looking at Chicago. They given $34 million. I'm sorry, that was uh, $53 million the city has allocated to give to these immigrants, illegal immigrants. And, and the people in Chicago, the people in Boston, especially, especially African-Americans, uh, they are absolutely pissed because you're taking funds. Why, why couldn't you use those funds for, 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 uh, for natural citizens instead of immigrants? And black people, uh, especially in Roxbury, are starting to, you know, they're protesting and they're calling out the mayor. They're calling out the governor. They're calling out the representatives and saying, what, what, what's the deal here? Why, why are these people more important than us who are citizens and pay taxes? They're not happy. Trust me. They're, this is going to backfire big time. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. I'm just, I mean, I, we can have an opinion about whatever you choose to. I mean, we can argue the squishiness of the language when it comes to catch and release, when it comes to unaccompanied minors when it comes to where the cases will be adjudicated, when it comes to the timeliness or not of the 5,000 a day and seven days. But you can't, I mean, the numbers are what the numbers are. I mean, it's clear. It's 20 million, excuse me, 20 billion of the 118 billion going to the border. 60 billion going to Ukraine. So roughly half of the immigration border security bill is going to be spent supporting Ukraine and we still don't have good accounting on what's happening out of that money. I guess they're still holding out hope in some weird way that Ukraine can come back at the last minute and upset Putin 
and Russia. Uh, it's just it's bizarre to me. Or you can believe that the military-industrial complex lobbied hard for money to be spent to create more conflict around the world where the American people would believe we need to make larger and larger investments in the military-industrial complex. Once again, there's a fair debate to be had about catch and release. There's a fair debate to be had about adjudicating case. There's a fair debate to be had about what that magic number is. There's a fair debate to be had about what Texas can do or can't do and what the Constitution says the federal government must or must not do. But there's not a fair debate to be had calling something an immigration bill when 20 of the 118 billion are spent actually on immigration. But but once again, guys, in the old days, in the good old days of the establishment uniparty, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, all the major networks would have been in bed with the establishment leadership of the uniparty, and you and I would have had this narrative, and we were gullible enough. I mean, a lot of this is our fault. We were gull enough, gullible enough to believe that they were shooting us straight, they were telling us the truth, and they were hard at work on an immigration bill. They've been hard at work on a globalist interventionist bill, and immigration had to be a way to sell it to a certain percentage of the public and a certain percentage of the Republicans. After they saw the poll results that said this is an issue that does matter to a lot of American We We voters. always thought inflation, inflation, inflation. Iowa and New Hampshire said immigration and inflation, inflation and uh, immigration. And I guess Biden's trying to figure out the, the best way to catch up or get on the good side of this debate. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan, good morning. Good morning, guys. Bottom line, we have immigration laws. Joe Biden spent 50-plus executive orders to break those immigration laws. The Border Patrol are being used as processors, not enforcers. The rhinos, the liars that get on TV and tell you any different are crazy. The Republicans are giving Joe Biden cover as they have always when a Democrat is in office, they give him cover. When those people, and all you've got to do is get out in your neighborhoods and see what I see, because if you're living in your elite bubble and only go to certain places, you don't see that here in South Carolina, it's happening too. We, in fact, open the border, hand them a smartphone, say, Here, here's where you want to go, you a ticket to go. The only reason anyone noticed, the reason they haven't been able to cover it up, is because the Greg Abbott sent 30000 to New York. They don't tell you about the 136000 that Joe flew in to New York smaller airports. They don't tell you that until the Democrats start complaining. Now, if the Democrat uh, mayors and governors complain, Joe says, well, we'll pass an immigration bill and I'll fund the money to your state to take care of these future voters. New York City now lets illegal aliens vote in their local uh, elections. Those people, and here in South Carolina, 
we've got illegals in my county alone that are EBT cards, Medicaid cards, WIC cards, and they destroy neighborhoods when the housing authority gives them a home to live in. So people just are not getting out looking. Don't say they're here to work. They're here to get freebies handed out in order to overwhelm the system. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning. Hey, um, Larry, the guy who um, used to run um, Trump uh, finance, Larry Cutlow. Yeah, Larry Cutlow. What did he? You see what Larry Cutlow say about the the um, job market and everything? I did not. Uh, I think Cudlow was on Bartiroma's show yesterday or the day before. Yeah, I think he yeah. said the numbers improved. I mean, he yeah. acknowledged the numbers have improved. Yeah, he's doing a great job, man. The stock market is booming. Okay, um, um, this is about um. See the uh, Republican American First Party don't even want to feed poor kids. You know what I'm saying? They don't care about nobody. If Trump wins, Putin gonna have keys to the White House. Thank you. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate it. So, so Williams is talking about the stock market is taking off like a jet, and then poor kids. That that's kind of yep. a, that's that's odd to me. You know one. One sentence is the market, the stock market, we always think the most affluent. Well, I mean, 80% of the stocks are owned by about 10% of the investors. We know that to be true. Um, anyway. And, uh, and Trump bad. He had to throw in some, you know, orange man bad comments. Well, I, mean, I, well. I, just, I just believe this. And, and I, I love it when Williams calls. And I think Williams and I could get along just fine uh, outside of the political disagreements <laughs> we have. But, but I just think you're making a grave error. If you try to sell the average American this economy, I, I've said it and I'll say it again. Eggheads and economic statistics will never, ever, ever take precedent over affordability. I mean, if you ask the average consumer in America today how the economy's doing, they would tell you they're struggling. I mean, they're fi- everything is so expensive. The affordability issue is as bad as it's ever been. And the Biden administration believes they can send economic eggheads quoting statistics about the the good or bad of the economy. And average consumers know how much things cost. And that will always, always, always be the, the decision maker in why someone votes for candidate A or candidate B. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Don in Florence. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, yes. Uh, I've never heard anybody uh, suggesting to advertise in these co- refugee countries that how how easy it is to get here. It must be the success stories of those who are, he- are getting here that are encouraging their family to keep on coming to the, by the tens of thousands. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I would imagine that. I mean, I, you know, these people come seeking a better way. I'm not opposed to immigration. I mean, we made that explicitly clear. I think we need immigration. We need a variety of, of skill sets, a variety of, of perspectives. But 
I mean, the southern border is inexcusable. I mean, it's an embarrassment to this administration. It's really an embarrassment to America that we've allowed it to be such a free-for-all on our southern border and the way the majority of, and I'm reading on Twitter this morning, some of the Republicans I follow, I mean, you can imagine the conservative establishment Republican say, make the deal, negotiate in good faith. Uh, you got to compromise to some degree to get what, what you'd like. I don't know what you're getting out of this. I mean, if you're in America first, you're getting screwed. I can tell you that. And, and that's going to be, I mean, this really goes back to this generational battle that I've talked about. The majority of us want there to be a switch on the wall to turn off the, you know, the establishment uniparty and turn on America first. That's just not realistic. That's not going to happen. And, and, and I would imagine, remember Trump calling some of the nations crap old nations. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, isn't that kind of what we're, we're seeing play right, right before our very eyes. I mean, the people from these crap hole nations who can't make a way, can't make a life or seeking better opportunities. And I mean, my problem is they're distorting and manipulating some of the, uh, remember we did kind of a tutorial last week on the transfer of value. I mean, whatever the value is of an American worker, when you have an influx of unskilled laborers, I mean, you transfer a certain value of your work to somebody who's willing to do it cheaper than you are. I mean, that's kind of the dirty secret behind this. Koch brothers are open borders. The majority of their businesses are very labor intensive. They'd rather not pay an American $25 an hour. They'd rather pay a, an illegal or someone who is seeking asylum or some sort of um, clarity on uh, work visas and whatnot. I mean, they'd rather pay that person, you know, $12.50 an hour, uh, half the money, half the price. Um, it, it's kind of interesting the, the argument is that if you don't let these migrants in, there's no telling what a bag of M&Ms will cost you at the grocery store. Somebody's got to pick the strawberries. Somebody's got to do the, the farm work. Somebody's got to do the, the hard manual labor. I mean, there's some fear to that. There's some legitimacy to that, to that debate. Have the Americans decided to just kind of farm out, no pun intended, some of the hardest work, some of the most labor-intensive work? Yes, we have. Why? Because a lot of America's academics have convinced young Americans that, that, you know, that work is beneath you. I mean, let's let some of these peasants and, and immigrants do that sort of work. I mean, you are an educated, a highly educated American. You don't have to stoop to the level of driving a backhoe or working on a farm or digging a ditch or but running a piece of construction the, equipment. The idea of immigration to, you know, invite the masses, if you will, the huddled masses to our country that want to be American citizens, that want to assimilate into the society and therefore benefit you know, the benefit that comes along with being an American well, citizen. When, when, nobody talks about but, that side of but when, immigration. But when half of the leadership in America don't think that much of America. See, that's a darn shame. Well, I mean, but that's kind of where we are. I mean, if you really think about it, I wish I could find the bit where Biden, my orchestra is sitting beside Biden years and, and years and years ago. And Biden basically says there will be a, an enormous celebration when people who look like me are the minority. I mean, I don't know why you'd say that unless you believed it. But Biden said it's kind of a celebration of diversity and equity and inclusion when people who look like me are the minority in America. I mean, there will be a celebration. Maybe so. I don't know. Um, I've never been opposed to diversity. I'm completely and totally opposed to multiculturalism. And that's what you're talking about. That diversity can bring about significant attribution. And, and, and you know, I, I, I don't want to say a collective. That's the wrong word. We can have a better society 
if we create sincere diversity, but the diversity assimilates to American values and American I don't care how many blacks are here, how many Hispanics are here, how many white people, women, men, college graduates, non-college graduates, as long as, as long as we're pursuing the American dream and we accept that as kind of the framework of which we exist in our economy, our personal, our, our family lives. I mean, I think the American way is more than just a job. I think the American way is a way of life. And we've invited people into our country who have no respect at all for the American way. That the American life, the American dream means nothing to these people coming across the southern border. How do I get as much out of this nation as I possibly can? And you know they don't care about the laws because they wouldn't come the way they do. I mean, they're lawless to begin with. I mean, when you really think about it, the day they step foot into the country, they're a criminal. I mean, we're adding criminals to our country in, in ways never seen before. The day you enter our nation illegally is the first day of being a criminal in America. But, but once again, they've been convinced, and you know they, I mean, they communicate one with another. And they know that these, these, I'll tell you one thing that, that they may be underestimating. And Josh, let's go to the top if you don't mind. Let's go all the way. Um, this could be political. And I wish it weren't the case, but it could be. If Abbott sticks to his guns in Texas, and I think he will, and the over the injunction at the Supreme Court was not telling Texas you can't put up razor wire. I mean that that's the misunderstanding. I see it all over the media. You know that Texas is uh, disobeying the Supreme Court, and uh, they're still putting up razor wire. That's not what the law said. The court ruling basically affected an injunction that the lower courts ruled and Abbott can still put up wire and the, the border patrol can still cut it down. He put it right back up, cut it right back down, put it right back up, cut it right back down. But, but here's what could happen. If the, if the illegal immigrants find it more difficult to come into the country via Texas, they're going to Arizona and California. Arizona's a swing state. Arizona could be inundated with illegal immigrants. Arizona could live some of what the sanctuary cities are living between now and next November. And if Arizona's a swing state, an important swing state, it could tip the scales in Trump's favor. I mean, it really could. The people in Arizona care about immigration, but that's really been Texas's problem by and large. All of a sudden, Texas says, look, I can't trust the federal government to do their job, so we're doing it ourselves. And the immigrants hear that. They're going to like, hey, man, hard to get across there. I mean, that guy in the wheelchair put up razor wire and, you know, got crocodiles in moats and drones with weapons. I mean, you better stay out of Texas. Don't mess with Texas. I mean, they mean it. Don't mess with Texas. And all of a sudden, the migrant trails begin going to California and Arizona. And Arizona, it doesn't matter in California. I mean, they're going blue. California is a, is a blue state, and there's nothing going to change that in the not-too-distant future. But as the immigration moves from Texas to Arizona, a lot of these swing voters, these independents in Arizona could say, this is crazy. I mean, this is crazy. All of these people standing outside of the convenience store, standing outside of the grocery store, sleeping in the gyms in some of these uh, cities in Arizona. Think about it. I mean, th th there's a lot of time between could now. Sway public opinion. It, th there's no doubt about it. Unless they let them vote. Rev, it has swayed liberal government's opinions. I mean, they're chastising the mayor of New York City now. They're saying, you're not as liberal as we thought you were. 
He said, forget liberal conservative. I can't afford this many people coming to our city. It's going to cost $1.8 billion to provide whatever these people need. And I'm talking about sleeping in gyms and YMCAs and county and city buildings and hotels. And I mean, the, the taxpayers are paying for it. I mean, the taxpayer sanctuary city sounds good. You're caring. You're compassionate. You have a bigger heart than everybody else. It's the tyrannical do-gooder. I mean, it's the bleeding heart liberal. And, and here's, the, here's the dirty secret in all of this. Not only are the radical leftists, not only are we on the right their enemy, the tyrannical do-gooder is their enemy at some point in time. I mean, once the tyrannical do-gooder says, I'm not talking, I'm talking about the bleeding heart liberal who genuinely, sincerely believes that government must help everybody. I mean, that would be a bleeding heart liberal, an abler solution. We had that debate last week. The radical leftist, the power-hungry radical leftist, I mean, they'll abuse, they will use the bleeding heart liberal just like they will the conservative to get their way. There, there, there's a difference, and I think we didn't spend enough time on this last week. There's a difference in a bleeding heart liberal and a radical leftist. A radical leftist is evil and wicked and godless. A bleeding heart liberal is just wrong. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's motivated by evil or power or authority or money or, or influence. I think it's just some sort of genetic bias they have that they want, they want to help people who need help. And they want government to be a solution. Now, my argument is government is more of an enabler than a solution, but I think there's sincerity in that. I mean, I think they sincerely believe in some of these things. The radical left will use them just like they'll use us. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Last hour of the Monday morning edition of Wake Up. Carolina, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Bert in Florence. Good morning. Good morning. I am failing to understand why people do this. I'm not a, you know, I'm not opposed to uh, immigration. I'm not opposed to people coming in. I just want to do it legally. And we do a million legally. I don't see how it helps this country at all to let one single person in. We have more than enough people. We certainly don't need more on welfare, and that seems to be what's flooding in here. Why? Do we not shut the border down completely? And, uh, you know, to argue over this border bill, it, it shouldn't be a discussion because Biden has the ability to completely shut down the border if he wanted to without any of this bill going on. So why let anyone in at all? Thank you, Bert. Bert, under any, who would you let in? If Bert were, if Bert were immigration czar of America, who would you let in? Bert hung up. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Eight four three six six and one mile. Okay, I want to get Bert to answer that question. Um, anyway, uh, I understand the fact that some don't like. I mean, I don't like this. I mean, there's no way you could defend what's happening at the southern border. But I think the concept of America. I mean, we don't get to. We can't decide our future without accepting our past, and our past has consisted of immigrants coming to America making unbelievable contributions. And I just think to forget all that, dismiss all that, discount all that, throw all that in the trash is not part of the American experiment. I mean, it's just not. Once again, I think, I think the southern border today 
and what the Biden administration have allowed to take place is an absolute insult to Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. But immigration has made enormous contributions to America over the years, and I just don't want us to get caught up in the southern border today reflecting on Ellis Island or the Statue of Liberty because I do believe that immigration has added a great deal to the American experiment. What What's happening at the southern border is unforgivable, inexcusable, an insult, once again, to the lawful, orderly way that many people immigrated to America and made enormous and consequential um, contributions. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown is in Miami. Good morning, Eben. How are you? Good morning. I'm well. How are you? We have coined the nickname, and I guess this goes back to Woodstock, being a fan of Woodstock. Take a load off Fanny is actually Fonnie Willis. Um, but she did, at the end of last week, acknowledge a personal relationship with a prosecutor she hired in Trump's Georgia case. Edmund, does this put the case at risk, or what potential impact does this have? Well, it, it might put the case at risk. You know, there is precedent for removing uh, or disqualifying this specific district attorney from uh, a case, especially a politically charged one, because it happened to Fonnie Willis already. Uh, she was prosecuting a uh, a politician while at the same time uh, campaigning for and fundraising for and appearing as a headliner at a, at a fundraiser for this particular politician's opponent. So she was disqualified from prosecuting. Um, so the question here is, uh, does her relationship, her personal relationship, which some have said amounts to a dating relationship with the special prosecutor she hired on contract, to prosecute former President Trump and others on charges of racketeering with regard to the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Um, Because this attorney, Nathan Wade, is billing the taxpayers of Fulton County, Georgia, $250 an hour. So far, has racked up more more than $600,000 in payments. And both uh, both, both he and uh, Fonnie Willis are taking lavish vacations and eating fancy dinners. Uh, and the question is, is, uh, is, is she uh, employing this man and paying him that much in order to be able to reap uh, benefits from that? Uh, and that's a big question. You know, it may or may, not, may or may not be happening, but it is a legitimate question, enough so that a court is wanting to look into it. Uh, and in the filings made, uh, yes, uh, Fonnie Willis, the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, admits that she is having a personal relationship with this uh, hired gun prosecutor, Nathan Wade. She says that the relationship began after she hired him. I don't know if that makes a difference or not. Uh, it kind of depends on the uh, workplace policies of the district attorney's office. But uh, but even still, who to whom did she di- disclose this relationship? Uh, there are plenty of workspaces in the private sector that allow uh, for workplace, uh, you know, uh, dating and whatnot, uh, but often they have to be reported to HR, uh, and one person can't be uh, a direct report to the other, some kind of scenario like that. Uh, was Is that a policy at the DA's office in, in full? No, if, if it is, is it being followed? Apparently not, because he reports directly to her, and she's the one responsible for hiring him, not as a staff prosecutor, but as a special prosecutor at a, at a rate much higher than what pro- the prosecutors on staff are making. Edmund, is there any chance, I mean, obviously there's an optic here that there's, there's kind of a, wow, okay, this doesn't look good. 
But is there any chance that Fonnie Willis could find herself in legal peril by mishandling public funds? Well, I mean, she could certainly, I think, perhaps face ethics uh, violations uh, investigations, whether or not that lands her uh, in legal trouble where she could be prosecuted for crime is something that would be further down the road. Um, It's hard to say uh, at this stage of the game. So who makes that determination? I mean, if somebody wants to be as aggressive going after Fonnie Willis as Fonnie Willis has been and going after Donald Trump, who has the say to that? Well, that's a great question. There would probably need to be some kind of independent investigation, probably from another state agency or maybe the state attorney general's office or even the state legislature. I guess the court could try doing it themselves. Uh, and then whatever that investigation would turn up would 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 result in recommendations. Do you uh, uh, do you proceed? To, do you do you follow this? Do you just wait, well, let's put it this way. Do you determine that no violations have occurred? There's nothing wrong here. Do you determine that ethics violations occurred and that ethics, viol- uh, you know, a, a, a punitive method because of ethics needs to be uh, handed out? Or was a crime committed? Was Did they steal money? Did they lie about it? Did they lie under oath about it? You know, did someone filling out a form perjure themselves? Then that would rise to the level of a crime. Uh, but, you know, like I said, we're not there yet. Well explained. Evan, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. You got it. That's, um, I mean, that, that's kind of where... I mean, you want to play this out to the end. There's no law, I don't think. I mean, you can talk ethics and morals and, you know, optics and how it looks, but I don't think there's any law that says a female prosecutor can hire somebody she's having a romantic affair with. It's kind of interesting. A couple of weeks back when I said alleged and Jeff called in and said, well, I'm glad you had it alleged because, well, it's not alleged anymore. She's admitted now. I mean, we knew she had an affair with Nathan Wade, and I think we know why she hired Nathan Wade, but we had to say alleged to do something the left does not do, and that is give the benefit of the doubt. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> they want to make sure we use the word alleged, oh, yeah. and they never do. I mean, it's Trump is a rapist. Trump is a philet. Trump did all this. Trump did all these other um, sorts of things. It's kind of the classic example of the cult that is Trump deranged. But, uh, but anyway... I don't think it's it's not alleged any longer. I mean, she's admitted to having a sexual relationship with a person that she hired to help her go after Trump. Um, he's billed the state taxpayer, and I guess there's some federal money here, but I mean, the Georgia taxpayer has paid Nathaniel Wade in excess of $600,000 at about $250 an hour. We know that they've taken vacations together. They've had lavish meals together. I still don't know that that is mishandling public funds. There's six Republicans and three Democrats at the Georgia General Assembly that are going to get together to kind of go over with a fine-tooth comb exactly what Fonnie Willis may or may not have done. Jim Jordan with the House Oversight Committee is going to kind of look across uh, the information he has to see whether or not there's some legal peril here. I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea where ethics ends and legalities begin. It's very unethical what she's done. It's, it's, it's very, I mean, the optics are terrible. It just is. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible look for those going after Trump. It's kind of interesting, guys. This is just the latest revelation. If you come after Trump, it's going to end up being a street fight. It just always does. Is he lucky? I, I, don't, I don't know. Is he chosen? I don't know, but every time somebody goes after Trump, 
it ends up in a street fight. And he's the best street fighter there is. I mean, you're fighting under his terms once you decide to go after this guy. So Fonnie Willis talked about ethics and morals and, and doing the right thing, you know, restoring integrity to the election process. And now we're finding out she's less ethical than Trump, less moral than Trump, less honest than Trump. And the alleged affair <laughs> has now become, you know, a known affair. And, and the question is, you know, did Fonnie Willis personally benefit from paying old both over $600,000 and then him going with her on trips and vacations and, and meals and whatnot? Uh, I don't know how you say, you know, this money went here and that money went there. I used my money to pay for that meal and her money to pay for this meal. And we used the money we got paid from our law firm. to do. I, don't, I don't know how you figure out uh, the, the ambiguity there because there's a lot of uncertainty and squishiness there, but it looks unsightly. I mean, it looks, as we say, the country untoward. And, and, and it makes Trump look like, I told you. I mean, I told you these people are coming after me. And it's so interesting how, for the longest time, these were allegations. I mean, nothing against Trump's allegation. He did it. Damn it. You know he did it. You know that rascal did it. But with with somebody coming after Trump, it's always an an allegation. It's alleged that Fonnie Willis had an affair. Yeah, but I'm glad you added alleged because nobody knows that for (laughs) sure. Well, now we know for sure because she's admitted that she had an affair with old Bo that she paid over $600,000, not out of her pocket. I mean, remember that, guys. I mean, this is not personal representation. If Josh wanted to hire the worst lawyer, the best lawyer, and Josh is writing a check for, you know, to pay that person, that's Josh's business. But this is Georgia taxpayer dollars, and there are a lot of questions that we need answered. And I think fundamentally, is there is this a case of mishandling public funds or not? I mean, that Jim Jordan, I got to believe, as much a bulldog as he is, we no longer have, you ready, allegations. We now have admittance. So Jordan, I would imagine, will try to convince Republican lawyers in the House that she indeed is guilty of mishandling public funds. Kind of interesting. She may face harsher legal uh, penalties than Trump. I mean, think of this guy. She was going after Trump with everything she had. There's the street. She was fight. going to make a name for everything she had, and all of a sudden, she finds herself in potentially more serious legal trouble than Donald Trump finds himself in. Let's go to the phone. So we have Bert back on the line, who I bet will be willing to answer your question. Bert, you there? I'm here. Uh, you, you know, you ever want to know what the left is doing to see what they're accusing the right of? Well, I mean, the, the only question, I mean, I was going to ask you the question. You said you would not let any immigrant in under any circumstance. Right. Well, I mean, why? What, 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 what if we'd done that 100 years ago? Here's, here's why, okay? It, a family starts out as just mom and pop. They have a kid. They have two kids. Maybe they can afford to have three kids. When they reach the point where they're having to borrow money to survive, as the U.S. is doing, do they run out and adopt a couple more kids, or do they go, oh, maybe our family's big enough? And that's where we are in this country. Not one person should come in as long as we have a person who can work who can't find a job. Not one person should come into this country that's going to increase our welfare situation. If there's, if there's a person to come into this country, they, number one, have to be able to support themselves. Number two... They have to be no kind of, of drain. Uh, you know, they have to be able to house themselves. I mean, look how many homeless people we got. But we're bringing in literally millions of people who also need homes. 
there, there is no benefit to this country to bring in one single person, not any benefit whatsoever. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. 843, there's clarity, but that's Bert's opinion. I disagree with that, but that's certainly Bert's opinion, and he's entitled to um, to share his opinion with our listeners. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Hello, you're on. Good morning. Hey, Ken. I think the, the litigation technical term for old Bo is paramour. Think about that. I, uh, you said you had some folks from New Jersey that um, you went to visit this weekend. Everybody in my uh, daughter's sorority is from New Jersey. I tell you what, man, I remember back in the day, I used to like people from New Jersey that, you know, went down to South Carolina school, and I was saying, what do you pay for tuition? They would tell me, wow, we were paying like eight grand a semester. I'm like, what? And then they would say, it's a bargain. And I thought about that. The higher academic industry is a bargain. What do you mean it's a bargain? Yeah, it would have cost us so much more to go to Rutgers or Princeton or Seton Hall or whatever. So that kind of shows you. And, and back in those days, you didn't have the student loan backstop industry. So that's, that's kind of interesting. And I'll think about Nikki Haley, for example. She was on what, Saturday Night Live. Did y'all see that? I didn't. You didn't, Dave? I know you, no. you keep up with that kind of stuff. I, I, haven't, actually, I haven't watched that show in... Five, six years at since, least. Since it stopped being fun. I haven't yeah. really watched it um, since Eddie Murphy, but I'm just saying, Nikki better be careful now going on these things because I can assure you if she's the front runner, if she was the person against Joe Biden, you don't think that that show would treat her like Sarah Palin? And then you go back to the day when Tina Fey, they just blistered that Sarah Palin back in the day. Uh, but I, I would imagine this is part of her strategy. That's free media. Somewhere along the line, you're going to have a CNN town hall from somewhere. I don't know where it's going to be at. Fox is going to have a town hall with her, and she's going to say, well, there's the empty chair like Clint Eastwood. Donald Trump didn't want to show up. And I'll leave you this, Ken. When we talk about the uh, military-industrial complex, to me, what state embodies that, in your opinion? The military-industrial complex. To me, it'd be Virginia. Thank you, Dave. You still there? Sorry. Yeah. Maryland, Maryland, Virginia, um, uh, some of those areas around D.C. Uh, Man, I think there's 13 electoral votes in Virginia, and I think about the doctrines. Where is the CIA at? Where is the Pentagon at? Where is the Atlantic Fleet? The the people that actually make – the the hundred thousand dollar double dipper, uh, where do they live? And then that thirteen electro votes means a lot. And when that that's going to be our theme this year is where you know how do you get these electro votes and this and that because it comes down to math. But anyway, I, I'm glad you agree with that. Now the part of it, South Carolina's got a lot of uh, military uh, interest, and maybe that's obviously that's why Lindsey does what he does. But anyway, uh, I, mean, I, I wish well for Nikki on a personal level. She's from, you know, close to where I grew up. But be careful. Don't mess with that Saturday Night Live because they'll turn on you. You have a good day. Thank you, David. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. It's kind of interesting. The Biden administration did something that I almost thought was impossible, Josh. They made immigration 
as important an issue as the economy. And it was the visual. I mean, it was when someone walks into a grocery store and they're expected to pay 60 bucks and they pay 90 there's not there's a visual. They got no idea how we got there. I mean, if you sat that consumer down and said, hey, let me tell you what happened. Back in 2008, they kind of normalized quantitative easing. But it really happened in 1973 when Nixon took us off the gold standard. I mean, they're like, okay. I mean, I, all I know is, man, my, my groceries normally cost 60. Now they cost 90. You know, my gas normally costs two bucks. Now it's cost 350. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I understand quantitative easing. I don't know what the gold standard is. Uh, I got a gold card. I'm a member of the gold club. Uh, you know, but, but you say so, that's fine with me. But there's something about that optic of people just storming, swimming across rivers, you know, climbing under fences, babies and children in their arm, walking around, you know, the corner of walls. I mean, there's something that just doesn't look right there. I mean, when you buy that, it's kind of interesting what these companies are doing now that we got this era hyperinflation. I'll give an example. One of my sweet fixes is peanut M&Ms. I mean, it's just something. I mean, I can have a craving for a peanut M&M, but I'm in the grocery store, and I'm with my wife, and I'll say, I'm going to get me a bag of these peanut M&Ms. No, I'm not. They're nine bucks. I'm not paying nine bucks to get a little sugar fix. <laughs> I mean, I'll pay three or four, but I'm not paying nine. And I believe that whatever M&M Mars did, so I'm in the grocery store yesterday with my wife, and there's a kind of a, um, a bigger-than-normal bag of M&Ms, but it's four eighty nine, And I'm thinking to myself, okay, some, I mean, there's no way it went from 9 to 4. We're not in a deflationary period. I mean, I understand disinflation. It's rising at a slower rate than it was when COVID was so rampant, but we're not deflating. I mean, it didn't go from nine fifty to four fifty. Corporations don't do that. Consumers are too gullible for corporations um, to do that. So it's half the size. I mean, they, they've made an adjustment. And I wonder if M&MR says, guys, we're not selling any of these big bag of M&Ms because it's sticker shock. Right. So yeah, let's package it about the same kind of bag because it was very, I mean, it was different. I almost like, wow, okay. For, for a second, I was stupid. And I'm like, I, I, something said, oh, I, I, we taught them a lesson. <laughs> you know, we, okay, yeah, we taught yeah. them a lesson. <laughs> right. They, they'll teach you a lesson. It's a little bit like me and Rev. We don't play with our cats. I mean, our cats play with us. Mm. I mean, you're not playing with your cat. You, know it. you may play with your dog because there's a sense of loyalty and honor and, and, and dedication to his existence. Cats are different, dude. There's no loyalty, no honor, no dedication. The cat is there to train you. Uh, we spent some time away from home this weekend. My wife and I come back to the house, and our cat looks at us like, okay, you again. Um, <laughs> wow, sure was nice without the, oh, it's the two you. of you. You guys didn't get in a fatal car wreck and... You know, <laughs> you're so, back. So, I mean, the consumer has us kind of sort of, excuse me, the businesses, corporate America has us kind of sort of trained like our cats have their owners, <laughs> their owners trained. So, um, and they but, almost got you on that one. It sounds they, like they did. They really did. Cause it was my fix. I mean, it's something, but I'm not paying nine bucks. I mean, I'm just not, I refuse to give into that $9 so they're, so they're pleasure. Just playing with you. They're still getting what, what they need and what they want. They're just playing with you. They're making you think you're getting the same product for half for what you used to get it for. I mean, before COVID, it was four dollars and fifty cent or so. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. I mean, I'll pay four fifty for an indulgence, but I'm not paying nine bucks. I mean, there's some principle to it. Um, there has to be some degree 
a principle to this. Uh, uh, along those lines, let's go back to, a, I guess, a, a subject that uh, that Williams brought up last hour when he was talking about Kudlow's interview. And Kudlow, and I did see the interview where he talked about, hey, there are some economic numbers that are positive to report. And, of course, they're coming at it from the standpoint of why why does that not, that not help Biden in this election year? But so if we do have an economy that we're getting hammered by all the forces that are hammering, the, the prices, the inflation, I mean, it is terrible. We all know it. Um, why do you think it is still resilient and shows some of these numbers to be at least it's still strong? the money supply? I mean, it's st- I think the one thing Jamie Dimon didn't count on, it's hard to believe that Dimon doesn't figure this. I believe that the consumer ran out of money about when Dimon said they were going to run out of money. And I'm talking about excess money. I mean, all the COVID money, all the, the money that was just, you know, infused into the economy and you got a little bit of it. And I got a little bit and Josh got a little bit and it was crazy land. You know, you had all these, I mean, just $7 trillion making its way to an economy. But what, what I don't think Diamond considered, and I thought, I think we may have talked a little bit about this. I always felt that if, let's say Diamond's right, and the consumer ran out of money in October, and it gets back to normal. Well, I mean, all of a sudden, if things are 20% higher, but Rev's getting a 20% bump from the government, then we're back at equilibrium. But if things remain 20% higher, and Rev's 20% bump, the COVID money goes away, then all of a sudden, wow. I mean, it's a stretch to buy that $8, $9 bag of M&Ms. I'll do without that. I mean, there are other things. I need, I need, you know, I need the necessities of life. But I think what Diamond failed to understand was how much money the governments had parked in accounts all over the country. And eventually that money had to be dispatched. It had to be put out into the economy, construction jobs and, and additions and renovations and football stadiums and, and uh, you know, additions to schools and the county and city spending some of the government. And I think we got to the end of the year and some of these government agencies who normally keep, let's say they normally keep $25 million in deposits, they've got $75 million, and they got to do something with the $50 million or it goes back to the, the federal government. That was the extension. I think that's why the economy is so resilient. We, we didn't count on these governments having all this money, and all of a sudden Josh owns a construction company, and they put out for bid a, a $10 million addition to a school. And all of a sudden Josh says, wow, man, I'm, I'm worried this economy softening up. And then Josh's partner said, well, it could, but I've got these three bids. They're all government-related. I mean, they're, they're a school district, a county government, a city government, wanting $10 million worth of work done. Well, that carries you for a little while longer. Josh's employees can stay fully employed. No hours cut back, no layoffs. But it's still make-believe. It's not real. I mean, that government never needed $75 million in the bank. I mean, $25 million is the historical norm. I mean, that's kind of the way government's run. you got to have so much what we call cash on on hand. I mean, it's just a it's a surplus. It's a it's a balance. When I was at the county, I think we had to have 150 days of operating cash. I mean, if you didn't ever collect another dollar and add valorum taxes, you had to be able to run the county for 150 some odd days. Don't hold me to that date, but it's something like that. And you always had to consider how much you've got in cash reserves. What is your fund balance? I mean, that's the government word. What is the fund balance? So the the school district's fund balances went from 20 million to 40 million. The county's fund balance went from $35 million to $60 million, and all that money was sitting there. And all of a sudden, the government says, but the string attached is you got to deploy that money, got to do something with that money by such, uh, such and such a date. And, the, you know, that, that kind of extended the benefit to the consumer because that money kind of got out into the, into the economy. And, you know, the, um, 
the construction company's paying a guy to work 10 hours a week overtime. So he's got a little more money. He's buying that $9 bag of M&Ms. I mean, he wishes it was four fifty, but he's willing because, I hey, man, things are still pretty good with me. Now, once again, I don't want to say the ignorance of the consumer, but that's kind of what it is. I mean, it's the ignorance of the consumer. Because if you sat a consumer down and said, you know why you got that money? I mean, you got that money because the government had excess money. They hired your company to do a job. Your company gave you a good benefit and wage. Plus, they gave you some overtime because there was more work to be done than needed to be done. But, but now you're seeing these big companies, FedEx, UPS, Amazon, um, some of the auto manufacturers. I mean, you see it every day. Amazon's laying off 1,200. UPS is laying off 12,000. FedEx is laying off 8,000. I mean, do you believe these companies are not projecting what they believe the economy will look like six or seven months from now? And, and I just think, once again, to the original point, quantitative easing, gold standard, um, you know, COVID relief money, American Rescue Plan, the guy coming out of the grocery store participating in that survey would go, I don't know. I don't know, man. I'm just mad. I mean, it was 60 bucks. Now it's 90 bucks. But I think we all see the optic of someone who looks like they weren't born here. I mean, I'm being a bit stereotypical. I mean, I'm not trying to be provocative. I mean, it's the truth. I mean, you don't see many blacks or Caucasians coming across that border, do you? I mean, you look at the subsets of our electorate historically has been blacks and whites. Now we have a fast-growing Hispanic vote in America. Um, it's outpacing whites or blacks. In fact, there will be more Hispanic votes cast in 2024 than African-Americans vote cast in 2024. Um, it's the second biggest demographic in America today. Hispanics will vote at a higher number, not rate of percentage, but a higher number than African-Americans. And I just think it's... It's the optic, Josh, of watching people jump over fences, walk through streams and rivers with suitcases in their hands, um, you know, crawling on their back. I just think it's weird. And I think America goes, man, you can't do that. I mean, we can't. There's a very technical definition for the economy. Quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, the Fed rates, the, you know, the um, is the Fed going to raise rates six or seven times this coming year? I just think the Seinfeld watcher goes, I don't know. I don't have any idea. I'm not on the Fed. I, I don't know what quantitative easing is. But I saw these damn people climbing under these fences coming into our country, and I'm not for that. I mean, by God, we've got a lawful, orderly way of which you would, you know, become an American citizen, and I'm just not. I mean, I'm not for that. That looks crazy. Why are they letting that happen? I mean, I've had my wife ask me, you ready? Why would they let that happen? I mean, who thinks that's a good idea? My wife is not a politico. She's not a news junkie. She's married to somebody who does this for a living, but her world's more about Seinfeld and Netflix and whatnot. But even she'll say, why are they, why would you let that happen? I mean, who believes that's a good idea? I wanted to say, and you guys know how much I hate to toot my own horn, so I'll reluct, but I have to reluctantly do so. <laughs> if you remember a couple months ago, I said, I think it was on immigration, but I was kind of applying this to general topics. I said that if, if you, if we let Democrats kind of do what they want, just for a little bit, not indefinitely, they will screw it up. And it'll they'll screw it up to the point to where your average Seinfeld watcher will notice and it will it will start to affect them. And it didn't take long for them to do so. And now the mayor of New York, the mayor of Chicago, who are black liberal Democrats, are are coming out as anti immigration. And you think the Seinfeld watcher is saying now who believes that's a good idea? Exactly. I mean, why would you let that craziness happen without stopping people? Let's take a break. 
Be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Got trivia in just a few moments. I think we got somebody calling in. We've had some sporadic hits and misses with our phone this morning. Um, I think this call made it through. I don't think it's equipment on our end. I'm sure it's not. Rev knows I complain profusely <laughs> about that. It's been working pretty, pretty good but, since I, mean, I we... think they're dependable now. I just yeah. think it's on the other end. That's right. Somebody on a cell phone and then kind of a um, not a consistent reception area. Let's go to the phone. But this is Jim in Florence. Hey, Jim, you're on. Hey, good morning. Hey, so, Ken, can we talk about the absolute disaster for Democrats, what the South Carolina primary was? I mean, they lost, what, over 408,000 votes from 20 until uh, until 24. Um, they keep claiming that black participation went up because they're trying to play around with statistics. But if you go look at Allendale County, which um, is has the highest uh, – rate of, of black constituents um, in the state at 75%, they lost 62% from 20 to, to 24 in participation in the primary. Trump got more votes in the New Hampshire primary than all the votes that were cast in South Carolina's primary. I mean, it was an absolute disaster, and, and Republicans should be pouncing on this with a media narrative that um, there is no support behind Biden anywhere um and that uh and that biden who is supposedly this this popular president is not as popular as, as they want us to believe biden is highly good thank you jim appreciate it i mean he's, he's he's unpopular i mean his unpopularity is at record levels his approvals are at about 37 percent i mean that's i mean that 42 percent of the american 42 percent of the country are democrats I mean, it's probably higher than that. Some of us like to verbalize, I'm an independent. It's probably about 50, 50 to be honest with you. Democrats would be a little bit larger party than, uh, than the Republicans are. There's no excitement, no enthusiasm. James Carville said one day last week on a podcast I was watching, now that's after he called Trump a rapist, but Carville said the only enthusiasm of the electorate is the Trump crowd. I mean, the establishment conservatives are not enthusiastic. Their enthusiasm is trying to stop Trump, but it's not about Governor Haley. It's not about Ron DeSantis. It's not about Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, the Trump crowd are the only enthusiastic bunch in American politics today. I think South Carolina had 4% Democrat turnout, and Jim's right. I mean, it was a bad day. I had a Republican, excuse me, I had a Democrat officeholder text me late Saturday afternoon and say, this is abysmal. I mean, there's just no and turnout. And didn't you hear there were some groups that were trying to encourage, like they did in New Hampshire, since South Carolina has an open primary, they want the Democrats to vote for Haley in the Republican I, I, primary. I, just, I don't think that flies in South Carolina. But I, I, just, I heard there was an attempt I mean, at that. There's always, you know, I mean, you've heard that. I mean, let's stop Trump and let's stop Reagan and let's stop these controversial political leaders. I mean, the Democrats always say, go vote in that primary to save democracy and to make sure this totalitarian dictator is not elected. This rapist is not elected uh, president, but it never works. I mean, it just never, ever um, works. I think Trump's going to win South Carolina somewhere around 60-40. Nikki said herself that if she doesn't exceed what she did in um, New Hampshire, that it's time to consider whether she's a viable candidate or not. She got 43% of the vote in New Hampshire. We know that that was supported by independents and some Democrats. New Hampshire is kind of a case study in the complexities of primaries. South Carolina is going to be, a, I think, a better reflection. I mean, it's conservative, no doubt. 
and it's Southern, no doubt, but it's going to be a pretty good reflection of where the, the, the Republican voter is across the country. This is not your grandfather, South Carolina. I mean, this is a, this is a, uh, we'll use Josh's word. This is a very diverse state now. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people along the coast who didn't grow up here. They're not as, uh, the word I like to use is Jesus-y. I do want to say this before we go to trivia, Josh. I got an email, or our owner, our manager got an email. Somebody of the Catholic faith felt insulted by my sarcasm and off-the-cuff remarks. Look, and I sent an apologetic email back saying I never would in a million years insult anybody about their spirituality, their faith, their religion. And I'd love to tell you it's going to never happen again, but it probably will. Because I, I say things off the cuff. I, I'm, I'm sarcastic as can be. I mean, that's probably, I mean, I'm probably too sarcastic for my own good, to be honest with you. But whomever out there is of the Catholic faith and were offended by my comments, I certainly don't intend to offend anybody, but I'm not afraid to. And I'd love to say that'll never happen again, but odds are it will. Just understand this is the convergence of entertainment. What does Beck say? entertainment and enlightenment and craziness and silliness and off the cuff and sarcasm. Um, and if you're that serious and I mean this with all due respect, if you're that serious about what I say, you probably need to find something else to listen to. Uh, and I mean that with all due respect. We're stepping because, on toes all the time. Well, I mean, sure we may do. step on yours. I mean, I, I'm an equal offender. You know, <laughs> it's just like somebody said, well, you don't like these people. I don't like anybody. So you can't accuse me of kind of a picking those people out to, Take advantage. Anyway, let's go to the uh, takes Mondays to make Fridays trivia. 843-661 is our number. 864-6- 843-661-093. I don't like apologizing. 0937 <laughs> is our number. Sorry, Catholics. Um, your fault. Uh, <laughs> Pepsi of Florence is our sponsor. The first correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays t-shirts. Thanks to our good friends who provide us with Pepsi product, Celsius, life water, um, galore. We're talking a lot about basketball. We're talking a lot about conferences. I'm arguing that the last day of sports season is Sunday when the Super Bowl sports starts back. Uh, but you got basketball and racing and revs baseball. Oh, yeah. It's kind of cute, too. Here's my question, and I'm talking about SEC, SACC. you got to answer both. What SEC team has won the most college basketball national championships along with what ACC team has won most college basketball national championships. I need the SEC basketball team that has won the most and the ACC basketball team that has won the most. Um, Hint, they're both blue bloods. Let's go to the phone. Hi, you are on. What's your guess? Uh, Kentucky. Yep. SEC. And North Carolina for the ACC. You're right. Kentucky's won eight. North Carolina's won six. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Um, T.C. Fowler, Florence, South Carolina. Okay, T.C., sit tight. We'll get you back to Josh. He'll get your information, and you can come by the studio and pick up your Pepsi products and your Takes Mondays to Make Fridays T-shirts. I'll tell you, man, we've got such good sponsors, such good partners. Some are Catholic. Some aren't. Some get offended. Some don't. I think the... Josh, they were offended by me mentioning they weren't quite as Jesus-y as us Baptists. They were more Mary, you know, Mother Mary. Somebody took offense and said, but I'm not a theologian. I mean, I'm not. I've read the Bible from one cover to the next. I I believe in the Old and New Testament. 
but but please understand that this is not four hours of theology, but rather four hours of whatever it is you choose to <laughs> call it. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.